0: hey folks welcome back to the Eat Well podcast i'm your host dylan Ayers, and we are in hunting season i um just got back from a successful elk hunting trip got to explore some new area and uh highlight for sure was uh, my hunting partner jenny p getting her first elk and uh yeah there's some good storytelling coming up with that I'm we're I'm gonna try and put together a podcast uh Around that adventure, that's pretty fun and and uh, on the heels of uh, yeah, a pretty exciting caribou adventure, which was also just a, a bunch of fun adventures with my wife Mickey and uh, friends Ashley and, and Jason. And um, yeah, okay, so there's some good stuff coming. But th- this podcast has been, I've been sitting on it for a bit because I got to hang out with um, Jordan Kowalchuk uh, probably back in maybe the spring and had a long conversation around hunting mule deer specifically like how to hunt timber mule deer how to find those buck zones the type of habitat that bucks seem to feel comfortable in yeah what is what does that habitat and terrain look like how do you find it and then strategies and thoughts around how to go about hunting it so Jordan's been involved with a project called bc backcountry you'll you'll find their stuff on instagram and and he'll tell you a bit more about it in the podcast but but I, that's how i found him. He just uh, post some pretty amazing pictures of incredible animals and some pretty cool hunts and um i've been following along and i've been thinking about doing more of these podcasts where we just kind of get into the how and the why that you may hunt a specific species we did the one on the blacktail hunting a while back um, and uh, if you haven't heard of that one, that one's pretty good. And then this one, um, yeah, this is great. So I'm I'm fired up. I'm going to go deer hunting at the end of the week. So hopefully this podcast will will get to you and get you fired up for what is kind of the peak of the mule deer hunt coming up. So before we get started, want to do a bit of housekeeping. So we're still working on building our repertoire of online courses. We just launched our elk, um, like how to hunt elk online course. It's like four hours of content I bring in. I uh, brought in Mike Bridger for this one, who's a regional wildlife biologist and an expert elk hunter, and just an all-around knowledgeable person. And between the two of us, we share our, our knowledge and and uh, insights into hunting elk here in BC. So super helpful if you're learning to hunt elk. Uh, we're just finishing up uh, how to be safe in bear country with uh, Rob Wilson, one of my counterparts in at BC Parks and a professional when it comes to managing bears. So that's going to be a good one. Hopefully get that one out shortly. And uh, yeah, and of course, if you're looking for um, a core class or a pal class or know someone that needs it, you you can go to Eat Well and uh, we can help you out for sure. And we'll be looking to do more fun kind of food-related workshops this winter. Okay, so the other things I want to tell you about is for this podcast to to keep going, of course, I get a little bit of help from sponsors. Probably the first um, one to mention here, and and I think it's Kind of important because we'll be talking about you know the importance of mature forest or old growth forest when it comes to habitat here in BC and um, good mule deer habitat is reliant on winter range which is typically old growth forest. So I really encourage you to get involved with a conservation organization here in BC. I'm an advocate for folks to be part of the BC Backcountry Hunters and Anglers community. They are a supporter of this podcast. And what I love about what they do is they bring together sort of a younger generation of folks to be conservationists and get inspired, build community. And if you're a new hunter looking to meet other new hunters or like-minded, I think you should get out to one of our events. Um, There's, 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 Chapters in each of the regions here in BC, and they're all and they're always hosting cool events and doing cool conservation projects in your community. So have a look at the BC Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and get involved. Um, on this past trip, I was thinking about how important my iHunter app is to uh, for um, kind of like offering uh, my hunting diary. So I, I used to maintain a hunting diary, so I write everything down. Uh, that I learned over the course of a trip and draw little maps and sketches and locations of where I found animals. But that's kind of morphed into using my iHunter app to hold all of my kind of waypoints and and uh, photographs of the different spots that I've come across that I thought, geez, you know, this is a good spot. Maybe I should come back here and hunt another time or or I'll make notes or, or drawings of how to get in and out of specific spots. So over time, what's kind of neat is that when I go into my iHunter app, I've I've got a series of waypoints that'll you know will tell me sort of where I've either killed animals or found good habitat or but I'll often have sort of I have almost a code that says like kind of hunt here next time where I come across something cool and think hey I should hunt here and over over time I kind of build up this bunch of information that is super helpful and and I'm, I just don't remember things the way I used to so on this past hunt I had explored a few spots in and around this area where we hunting elk. And I made a few marks as to pieces of habitat I wanted to come back to. And there I was floating down the river and, and all of a sudden my phone was like saying, you know, looking at my iHunter app and it's like, oh, hunt here, hunt here and access this spot and good, good piece of habitat here. And that really drew us in and helped us focus our on our hunt. And I sort of do this across all of BC. So I really got to be careful not to let anybody have access to my iHunter account because <laughs> I find a lot of my whole process or my diary of uh, all the spots I've hunted and want to hunt and have thought about hunting so yeah anyways i hunter app super helpful tool if you haven't already got it it's uh, one another another reason that i use the app and and rely on it um and of course if you if you uh want to get a bit of a deal on it there's a discount code in our uh in our show notes to get access to the i hunter app we've also got support from west coast kitchen canada you get awesome backcountry meals in the backcountry Please use the discount code so they know you're listening and and you're getting turned on to their product. And of course, I spent a lot of time talking about um, the uh, Seek outside folks. They they've sent me some great uh, tents now, a couple of different tents that I've been been able to use and take advantage of. And and ultimately, they make super lightweight tents that um, are game changer for me. So being able to um, hunt later into the season with the TB tent with a stove in it is is it's pretty awesome and also the most recently their sunlight tent is just a super light two person tent and it's, it's kind of comes in about the same way as my one person tent so i can get twice as much space if i'm going solo or if mickey and i are going um up into mule deer country um yeah we're basically investing it's just a little over two two and a half pounds into our shelter and um yeah it's, it's the right tent for for our mule deer hunt coming up so i'm pretty stoked about that And then lastly, if you're looking for a good quality beer, go find our friends at at Beer Beard, that's B-E-E-R-E, Beard at Lawnsdale, at the foot of Lawnsdale. They make awesome crispy light beer and they send us on our adventures with the odd beer, which is super great. And they also donate beer to our conservation efforts that we're a part of. All right, that's the big read. I appreciate taking a few minutes and please do use the, those discount codes that are in the show notes. It definitely helps um, for folks to know that you're listening and that you're connecting Eat Wild to our partners. And um, yeah, okay, let's get into this one. Jordan Kowalchuk, everything you need to know about hunting for mule deer in timber, enjoy. Hey folks, welcome back to the Wild podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Ires. And in this podcast, we want to share mentorship to learn how to hunt, fish, and gather wild food. Our goal is to reduce barriers and create an inclusive and welcoming community for all folks who want to learn how to eat wild. So join us as we share stories, ethics, adventures, and knowledge about a way of life that's rooted in eating wild. Hey Jordan, welcome to the Eat Wild podcast. Thanks for hanging out.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Nice to uh, nice to jump on here with you. Looking forward to this.
0: Yeah, right on. So I I, I asked you on because I have been a, a bit of a follower of uh, BC Backcountry on your Instagram feed and and uh, gosh, I'd be honest, like I like you know you you the your hunts result in some you know a fairly consistent level of success, which is which is you know I, I find always interesting. I think I'm, you know I. I always find the consistency of, of hunting as a, as, as a reflection of you know, this person might really have something figured out. But there's also there's some pretty incredible mule deer buck stories uh, throughout the years that you're doing it. So so I'm excited to talk to you about both of those things. Um, but first off, what, what's BC Backcountry all about?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, thanks for that. Um, I guess um, the reason we started it was kind of just we could see a hole in, like Instagram was just kind of at its infancy and um you know facebook was getting just plugged up with all sorts of kind of stuff that didn't really seem like a great platform to be on um you know the old forums hunting forums were a lot of fun but they were kind of you know getting phased out with instagram being kind of the the easy platform to get quick quick dose of of hunting inspiration so it just seemed like there is a lot of good stuff happening down in the states and a lot of good content all around and I just kind of looked at what was going around in bc and i was like man i know there's some absolute killers and some like amazing people doing amazing things in bc and it's super tough place to hunt so I just thought it'd be a cool cool startup with my buddy Ryan there so we chatted about it a bit and then decided to kick it off but um, I mean the, the main reason was just to start getting some content from BC out there and start talking about hunting in BC and connect with others share stories and I think we have a match for there it's kind of capture the moment and, and share the story and kind of inspire or whatever and we don't put as much effort into capturing the moment as we we did at the beginning just because our lives are getting busy and all that and it's kind of a secondary thought now I think when we're hunting we we try to but it's not the the main main purpose we just want to get out there and hunt but we try to when we can pull out the cell phones pull out the the camera and you know collect a story along the way and and share it with the folks so um, always seems to be a hit with everyone that's that's gearing up for hunting at the same time so it's a lot of fun for sure
0: yeah you know I I I have a mixed relationship with with trophy hunting shots because I think that it you know when presented to the wrong audience it, it it creates a whole host of other challenges for for how we tell our talk about our way of life as hunters and it's sometimes misunderstood. But for some reason, when I, I look through your page, I, I I don't get that same, uh, doesn't get my backup the same way that say, if I'm looking at some other folks who really maybe it's, maybe it's more a more staged effort to, to take a trophy shot. There's something genuine about the stories that you tell this, you know, including, you know, posing with a, Depressive animal, sure. yeah, still is part that, of the Is process, that intentional? Right? Like, is that intentional? How, how you guys do it, or Abs-
1: absolutely? Like, um, I mean, call it. You know, the tr- word trophy hunter has so many meanings. So it's kind of like you know, we could we could probably podcast that whole <laughs> and dissect that word if we wanted to. But um, I certainly, we certainly try to pursue kind of older, aged animals, mature animals, stuff like that. But um, generally, it's not like I don't think presenting that as the platform always translates the best for people because they think that's all that matters. And, you know, if I had my choice of how I hunted, I'd choose like adventure and excitement and, you know, being unique and out there over just trying to kill the biggest animal or something like that. Right. So I think sharing the experience and story is the important part at the end of the day. Um, And it's, you know, I think, I think one of the big misconceptions with hunting is that it's, it's a lot of killing and generally that's kind of like, if you don't kill maybe you're just out there wandering around a lot but and so you kind of need to to kill once in a while to kind of really connect the dots and say yeah I am a hunter I am hunting but generally it's just a lot of time in the woods having fun and and you know pursuing animals and if you get lucky enough and things come together and you're able to put some some meat in the freezer and get a good picture of a good animal that's that's a huge bonus but I think if you if you focus on that you're missing like 99 percent of what else is going on out there. Right. So I think if you lead with that, it kind of continues to perpetuate that focus of it's all about the kill and realistically it's like some of the best hunts, you know, nothing hits the dirt and, and you go home with, with, with nothing, but, you know, empty gas tanks and and empty coolers and (laughs) that's the way she goes. Right. So I think those can be just as fun and just as exciting. And, and I think if you kind of share the whole story, it's, you know, it speaks to, to what we're all experiencing out there. Right. Which is just, you know, good time in nature and, and the pursuit of it all. Right.
0: Yeah. That's well said. I, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I, start, I have a line about, uh, about like just trying to tell better stories as a hunting community and just being a bit more thoughtful about it. Like, absolutely. you know, absolutely. Like, like I would, I would love nothing more to share. Like, I mean, I kind of have a, I, I mean, I'm kind of backing off on it, but for years as I was starting out Eat Wild, I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I just, I will not share a trophy hunting shot right. on my social media feeds and, and it's hard not to, because I mean, I like there's been some animals that I'm just like, oh man, this is such a great story and a great hunt. And, and, and then, you know, I, I've been kind of peeling back on that a little bit and, 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 you know, when, you know, Mickey got her first deer, my wife, I mean, it was just such a great story. And I want to share that story and share those photos. And, um, and I have, you know, my friend Jason just got a tremendous elk last year and it was his first elk. I mean, man, this is like, there's so much to that story and, yes. and granted like when you put you put that picture up of, of jay with his like giant six-point bull elk or mickey or or ashley with their first box i mean like you know it's gonna like drive so much more traffic and interest than just telling stories so you're kind of caught up in this like yeah anyways at the end of the day it's,
1: yeah it's, it's important though right it's, it's there's two narratives and they're both you know we don't want to we don't want to you know in my mind we don't want to shut ourselves down too much right like it's like we can get to this point where maybe we get too defensive and we 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 don't kind of portray some of the parts that we care about as well but um yeah i think there's there's somewhere there's a happy medium right and and it's it's tough to know what that is but but certainly the story coming out there first i think is super critical and yeah i mean it's it's hard not to share because that's what i want you know friends and colleagues and other hunters you know i love seeing what they're doing and what they're getting right so you you definitely it's nice to see the content out there but the grip and grin is just kind of a Obviously the small part of it, right?
0: Yeah, well I think it's just something authentic and I think that's what I see in your stuff. It's authentic. It's it shares the adventure and the story and it's a lot of fun. Hey, just pop your mic up a little bit, Cause I just you just dropped out a little bit there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's you're back you're back in there. Yeah, okay. Well this is exciting. Well yeah, we're on the same page. I, I really appreciate that thoughtful uh you know, those thoughts around that. It's a tricky topic to talk talk about. But at the end of the day, I mean that's why I'm calling you. <laughs> so I was like, Hey man, you've killed some huge bucks I wanna talk <laughs> about it. So Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? Man, so it's gonna be a benefit to, to myself and my learning and and certainly those of the uh of the, of the podcast audience so we'll get into it so how did you start hunting where, where what's your journey been to, to where you are now as a hunter
1: um yeah i mean i grew up in a hunting family my dad was a hunter um he wasn't like a big game focus hunter he had done his fair share but he kind of he just was get outdoors have fun so we had bird dogs growing up some german wirehaired haired pointers so we did you know, we would hike around and shoot grouse. Um, we did a little bit of chucker hunting. Um, and then we got really into the duck hunting scene. So we used to spend our Octobers mostly duck hunting. And then, um, you know, we would do the deer hunting. And that's sort of what I latched on to. Um, and kind of, I think I pushed my dad more than anything to get more into deer hunting. So as my kind of passion grew for, for big game, it was always around deer. Uh, and that kind of... Eventually kind of grew on my dad as well. And so we slowly kind of phased out on the duck hunting. Then there's a few years where the waters are low and all the potholes we used to jump shoot were, were no longer full of water. And it was, it was kind of less and less kind of productive or fun. And, and we just started realizing how much fun it was to hunt deer year round and not just November kind of thing. So we ended up doing a lot of October hunting for deer and, and eventually we did our first kind of official. general open season moose hunt and my dad had had you know an leh cow draw once before and he'd been on a buddy's draw once before and he'd been on a elk hunt before but that was kind of like our first group organized you know me and my friends my dad um putting our our stuff together and getting on an elk hunt and then after that first year just like you you can't not go back (laughs) to elk country year after year after year after having uh, a good experience (laughs) like we had so so eventually, kind of, you know, ducks are out of the way, grouse are out of the way, and it was just like it's all big game. So elk in September, mule deer in October, November, and and uh, catch up on some chores and, and and time with family and friends in between. <laughs> and I yeah. think yeah, so so yeah, I mean that's kind of uh, that's kind of the the big picture. I think where I am now, like like my dad had done some backpack hunts, he'd done some horseback hunts and and things of that nature, but it was never kind of a consistent yearly hunt. And and we kind of got into these you know, base camp elk hunts um, and got really into the mule deer. And we we're mostly truck hunting, mostly clear cut hunting and stuff like that. And then, you know, I just kind of, that wasn't enough for me. I wanted to be on my feet going in deeper, going in further. And and eventually I just kind of like expanded out of that and, and no longer kind of enjoyed the driving around the truck, even though that's a good time to, to you know, have, have a whole day together chatting and, and catching up and stuff like that and talking about all things in life. Um, you know, I just, it's so much funner being on your feet reading the lay of the land, seeing animals and kind of timber and stuff like that. And that just kind of stuck around. I just kept pushing further and further and getting more and more focused on, on figuring out the mule deer thing.
0: Right on. So, so I, maybe you already asked this question, but what is your favorite species to hunt?
1: Oh man, I guess if I had to choose, it, it'd be between elk and deer. I think, um, I think I'd have to say elk's probably the funnest, um, but if you had to put the two in front of me and say, which one would I choose for life? I don't know, man. That'd be a really tough decision. Kind of mule deer have my heart. You gotta, you gotta make like... a call,
0: man. You gotta make a call. <laughs> like, like, I got it. It's gotta lay it we need down. No, we need to know. We need to know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, gosh, I think the reason I could, you know, never not say mule deer is because I just, I can hunt them year round. Um, I live in mule country and for me, it's like, You know, the shed hunting leads to more research, which leads to more investigation and more, more kind of, you know, time in the woods trying to figure this area out, which leads to, you know, potential September, October hunting, but more often it's, it's going to be November. So it's kind of like, it's, it's year round, right? I could hunt and and focus on mule deer almost the whole year, whether it's looking at maps and and checking out areas from afar and, and then getting in on foot and doing it. Whereas, you know, elk, I just can't, I couldn't hunt elk that, that often. and, And often their shedding areas aren't necessarily... Where they're breeding or where they're going to be hunted in, so you know you can't spend as much time researching these elk areas as you can mule deer, which kind of drives the passion level maybe a, a couple notches up.
0: Yeah, oh, that's really cool. That that that's a good explanation, and I, I, I've, I've been feeling that same. I, yeah, you mentioned you listened to my previous podcast about blacktail hunting, and that's probably one of the things that I'm most excited about. Moving back to the Sunshine Coast, living in Blacktail Country, which is kind of outside my back door, is like that—that that process that can go throughout the whole year, where you can start hunting in December and not—not not actually hunting, obviously, um, but start that research project, looking for sheds, yeah. looking for sign, looking for new patches of forest that you know might might hold deer. And, uh, you know, maybe, I, I got to get cameras out this year, too, which is a, a whole other program I haven't haven't done, but we can maybe touch on
1: that. I, but I'll be. Oh, man. Yeah, a ton of fun cameraing for sure. It's it's definitely, once you get into it, it's hard not to. And it's, it's just a, a fortune of money for <laughs> for a couple of cool pictures. But it's just like, there's nothing more exciting than, you know, getting into a new area and, and coming back to a camera you had sat there for a while to see what happened. Right. And And learning a few more pieces of the puzzle along the way.
0: Oh, I'm excited to hear about Okay. Well, so that, that leads me to my next question. I was thinking like, what, what is your hunting process? So let's focus on mule deer and, sure. and for and the folks in the audience. I mean, it's worth dropping in on your Instagram channel, BC Backcountry. There's, there's um just some tremendous deer that have, you know, that you've got photographs of and, and also like that are alive as well as, you know, uh, as, as, you know, dead with, you know, after a successful hunt. Um, but it from what I from what I can see there's some level of consistency throughout the seasons where there's been you you've it looks like you've identified a deer that you've been excited about connecting with uh, one way or the other and um, take us through that process like of, of how you get on a uh a you know target animal I, I guess you could say and and um yeah walk us through it
1: yeah um so currently I'm hunting kind of a, a fairly remote area and what I kind of say is the I'm kind of, generally speaking, I've kind of got an area that I'm hunting and then I'm kind of looking for that next area. So you're kind of investing in the next spot. And, and once you figure figured out one spot, you kind of done the research, you've done the hard work. At that point, you kind of know, let's say 90%, 90% of the puzzle and the 10% is just kind of luck and timing and and effort and, and, and kind of all that boiling down into a, a moment that works out. Uh, but generally, I'm kind of like, on an area that I'm hunting actively and I'm going to hunt it very hard. Uh, and that's normally where I'm likely going to shoot a deer if I shoot a deer. Um, and then I'm kind of, you know, poking one toe in the water in somewhere else or multiple other areas, trying to find kind of another place because, um, it's just part of the adventure of obviously learning new area and trying to find the next honey hole and sweet spot. But also I've, you know, hunted enough areas in the years, you know, probably four or five kind of areas where I've pulled all my deer out of and areas just kind of change, right? Logging happens, um, predation goes up, predators go up and down and cycle as they do. Um, Hunting pressure goes up and down, you know, growth and regrowth and, and kind of the timber changes over time, blow down pine beetle and stuff like that. So anything that's kind of working today is, you know, generally going to keep working for long term, but it's going to go through its cycles where it might be really terrible for a few years, and and maybe even even worse than that, right? Maybe they open it up and log a whole bunch, and suddenly there's just traffic, and there's no no good winter range left, or or the deer don't hang around much, or the predators are too too thick in the area. So kind of find it's it's nice to be you know focused on one area, but kind of dabbling in the next area. And so when you need a break from where you're hunting, or you know, you're in the shoulder seasons of your of your normal hunts, kind of getting in there and, and checking out these other spots and, you know, looking for sheds or camming or just kind of wandering the timber, seeing what you can find for sign to, to see if it seems worthwhile or not. Um, so that's kind of like my, my general process is have an area that you know and then have an area you're investigating and figuring out. And, um, you know, when I started looking at the area I'm hunting now, I had essentially, I think it was two or three years in a row um i consecutively killed my biggest buck my biggest buck my biggest buck like one two three years in a row um Mm. and i probably would have continued to kill solid deer but i'd gotten into this area and what i liked was there was no other hunters and and it was really hard to get into so the time i was there it's just like you know i knew there's nobody else gonna be in competition which is always just kind of fun to be in the woods by yourself right and and know that you're not on somebody else's boot tracks and you're not going to pop up over a ridge and see somebody else hunting that next kind of basin over or something like that so it's kind of, um, you know, even though I was having a lot of success where was, I was, I, I just enjoyed this hunting even more. So it was just kind of cool to get to somewhere I could almost call my own and you never own an area and, and, you know, fill your boots. Anybody that wants to, you know, tr- Trump around and try to find my spots or whatever, right. Good luck if, you, if you're in there and you figure it out, um, you know, good on you, but it's just cool. If you kind of get away from the crowds, it's always a bit of fun. Right. And, and being able to, to know a deer that nobody else knows, or, you know, be able to walk away from a deer one year and actually know that you, have a good chance of seeing that deer again in a year two or three um is a really cool kind of feeling so so i got into that spot because of that and and guess what the, the area i was hunting they went in and logged a ton of it the road got plowed right out and, and redone all the way to the top of this mountain and you know i would poke around there on like a quick day off because it was closer and easier to get to and you know there's there's deer getting killed in there still um, but there was so much pressure there's lineups of vehicles going in and out every day and I saw one 4.1 day and went up there the next morning and just a young deer and there was literally a blood trail from that morning, literally coming out of the cut that i seen him in the night before and, and watched him bed down with some does, right? So you just kind of see that stuff happening. and It's all good. You know, everyone's everyone's getting out there having fun and getting action, but, you know, that's a tough area for me to want to continue to hunt if if there's three or four different groups in there every weekend kind of pushing it around and, and hiking up there. So, so um, when you
0: say, I I want to ask you one thing about, when you say some an area it's hard to get into, What is hard to get into look like to you?
1: Um, I think I'm about, yeah, probably about four or five hours from home by the time I'm like in it. Um, And it's not that far away. The methods and means to which I need to get in there are like extremely restrictive. Um, So you can't day hunt it. Let's put it that way. If Mm -hmm. you were to day hunt it, you might get into the pocket for an hour or two. And you better be working your way out because you're going to be doing some kind of treacherous stuff. In darkness of morning and darkness of night um, to get in and out of there. So my trips in there are, are essentially I'm overnighting every time, um, and then I'm waking up in deer country, boots on the ground at daybreak and spending the whole day with my backpack on in deer country and come back at darker or, or dusk kind of thing to camp and, and settle in for the night. So um, that's pretty hard to do in, in BC for mule deer because most mule deer are going to be wintering or running pretty darn close to, to some some Premium winter range, which is normally not that remote. It's normally, you know, there's going to be road access to most places. So, you know, that's not necessarily achievable as like a, a go-to spot for everyone. But, you know, if you if you go one or two ridges over from the closest road, even that's just going to be a pocket potentially that nobody else is going to day hunt if it's you know four hour hike in, four hour hike out, that type of thing. So, um that's kind of most of the spots I'm looking at now are kind of like that, where, you know, it's you can't step off the road into the pocket that they're running in if 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 that's the case, it's probably more likely that people are going to see quality deer stepping out on that road and crossing and, and getting shot and, and getting, you know, word out that, that this is loaded with deer or there's big bucks here or whatever, which is going to be, again, more competition for hunting, right?
0: Okay. So, step one find a spot that has low pressure so deer can get big and survive there. So, tricky Absolutely. place to get to do. So, I, I was interpreting also this from your answer. Do you, you're, it sounds like you're focusing on, uh, the late season hunt, when, when do you start getting serious about your mule deer hunting?
1: Um, so this place and most places that I hunt, i I normally shed hunt in the spring, do that investigation. I normally don't run cams a lot in the, in the summer. Um, <clears throat> mostly because I'll hunt an area that'll be kind of shoulder or the actual rutting and, and wintering grounds of the deer. So, um, pretty consistent and kind of similar to, I think, um, I don't know if it's Jason, but your buddy there that that um, was having good luck with blacktail. In a lot of mule deer habitat, like where they're dropping sheds, can be really, really close to where they're rutting, if mm-hmm. not the same spot. Sometimes, right? And and snow conditions and and food forage change and stuff of like that can can you know adjust that. But if you can find sheds, you're normally connecting the dots pretty quickly to where a deer is is spending its time rutting, right? So. Not uncommon for, for, well, you know, in this particular area, I've found sheds. uh, Last year's sheds, the year that I've killed the deer in the spring. Um, So the the two bucks I pulled out of there uh, were just like that. And then a third buck that we'd killed that Rick got out of there, I'd found that shed that spring. And then we killed them that fall Um, and had them on cameras as well. Right. So you kind of start to put the pieces together. You figure out where they're wintering. You figure out where they're coming from if you're like where they like to spend time and you know, next thing you know, you're on them in the, in the, the rut there. Right. And So if you could draw a
0: circle effort. like a, around from where you're sort of seeing, they're patterning them. Do you a know, guesstimate of like these mature bucks? How, how, how big of an area do you think they're using once they settle into that winter range
1: zone? Um, it's, I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting question. Um, it's, like, I, when I'm looking for areas to hunt, I'm generally looking for an area that you can't hunt in one day on foot. But in two or three or four days, you should be able to, you know, check out all the, all the nooks and crannies, right? So you kind of want an area big enough that, you know, you can hunt a section of it in a day and another section of in a day. And, and then maybe you're mostly covered off. If you're If you're hunting the whole area is only what you can cover in one day, it's like deer move so much, I think, that they might not be there at all they could be another ridge or two over. So if you can't get to the next ridge or hunt the next ridge, it's like you kind of might just be hunting the same spot with no sign that's fresh and no active deer. So generally what you can hike in a day, and I'm not hiking far, you know, a, a, it feels like six or seven kilometers, but it's not. It's, it's you know, two, three clicks round loop. And portions of that are very kind of fast paced because you're just going through some thick, nasty stuff to get to another kind of bench or, or, or ridge or something like that that the deer kind of hang out on. So you know, the amount of like actual hunting and traveling I'm doing where I'm kind of focused is, is not very big. A couple hundred meters at a time, you know, stru- stretches of a, of a quarter kilometer kind of set up. And, and when those deer are kind of rutting and, and wintering, they would move probably a lot more during the rut. And I think it, when they winter, they get pretty localized. Like I've seen them on cams, packing antlers, packing antlers, packing antlers, and then they're, there's no, no horns on the deer that are going by. So I assume one of them is the same deer that was packing antlers and you know, without the horns and headgear you can't really tell which which deer it is but i assume it's the same group and then i go and find a shed you know 300 yards from that by chance right and that does not happen every year it's not like i've got cams i know where every deer sheds like that is not how it goes but this happens from time to time right you will catch a deer packing one week and then no antlers for the rest of the of the of the winter and then you go and find a shed within 100 or 200 yards of that and you're kind of like oh yeah that makes sense that deer literally just stayed here the whole time but that same area that had four bucks in it one year, I don't get a single buck on cam the next year during the winter. So a little bit different snow. They forged it off pretty hard, maybe the year before, and it hasn't regrown yet. And they've shifted on the mountainside somewhere else. Right. So I think it kind of changes in wet year, dry year, mm-hmm. um, they kind of move over. So <clears throat> when I'm shed hunting, you know, it's like you have these sweet spots and then you don't find any horns anywhere near it for several years after that. Right. So it's like, it's predictable, but it changes. Um, and you find weird stuff, like I've found deer sheds, you know, on two, three feet of snow and they've got a trail that's, you know, <laughs> packed in on it. And, you know, me and, me and buddies have talked about it. Like, I think deer sometimes will just get stormed in and they've been forging an area so much they keep the snow a bit packed down and they keep these trails and the snow gets so deep, they don't want to migrate out. They'll just kind of weather it and spend the rest of the year in that deep snow in that pocket because because you'll find sheds just in a spot where you know there's three feet of snow in, in the spring still when everything else is starting to get green up and you're just like how is this deer surviving here and and you know you hike in there and you realize this deer is is foraging you know branches that a deer can't reach the whole year and all of a sudden the snow packs in there and they keep this trail packed down with a couple other uh, other bucks in the area and suddenly they're reaching all the old man beer and stuff like that that's you know normally five six feet off the ground and now they're know within reach of it kind of thing wandering through there so they're pretty unique animals right they can end up in some weird places wintering and and you find them kind of tucked away in some some interesting spots right and it's always kind of a bit of a crapshoot shed hunting you see all the sign in one area no sheds and then you go to a new area there's hardly any sign and you find sheds and it's just like you know you, you kind of try to pick that apart and figure out the puzzle and um i think some of that just has to do with quality of forage and and the older and more mature the deer the the more it can probably focus its energy on areas that have the best forage and that might be in deeper snow. Right. So I, I think, you know, deep snow, isn't necessarily always a deterrent in pushing deer down lower. Mm-hmm. Like you kind of, if you, if you kind of walk through the other countries, sometimes you're like, well, why aren't they just down low, you know, in the farmer's fields in the bottom of the valley or, or down where there's no snow right now melted off. And it's like, there's a reason for that, that food down there, it might be a little bit warmer. It might be, you know, no snow to wander through, but I think a deer can generally dig through snow and, and eat higher quality, higher nutrient value food in some of these higher up nastier spots, right? So they'll weather the deep snow for the value of the food content that they're getting at. Right. So I think that kind of points to a lot of things. And then I think the other part is if you think about where the majority of deer are hanging out in the winter, you know, the does will kind of ball up a bit and and generally be in the same area. And that's, that's where you're going to find the most of the predators, right? Like the cougars and and wolves are not going to spend as much time, you know, on the fringe where there's a buck here and a buck there, they're going to go to the core you know, food source, which is going to be where the herds of deer are hanging out. So I, I sometimes think that the, the mature bucks will literally just hang on the fringe for that reason as well, where, yeah, why would I go hang out with all these does? I know the, the wolves will be close by and all the cougars will be hunting in there constantly. I, I don't want nothing to do with that. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, four, five, six years old. I know better than that. Those, those deer can stay down there. I'll stay in my little hidey hole and, and be well protected. Right.
0: Yeah. There's uh there's something that I, I was, we, we did a mule deer trip. Uh, my buddy and I, um, Steve, actually we did a podcast a couple of, a uh, few podcasts ago about horse hunting. Yeah, my buddy Steve's a horse guy. We went cool. in and exploring some, some, of, uh, uh, some horse country and like, it was actually really beautiful country, almost to the f- point that it was like, it was almost too nice to be buck country. And right. where I backpack for mule deer, it's like, it's shitty, but it's a bucky spot it's steep and cliffy and nasty and like hard to get around hard it's easy to see deer hard to hunt them um and uh this is an early season hunt Right. And okay. Yeah. Yeah. so so where we were with our with these horses i was like man there's these beautiful rolling alpine hills and meadows for forever and we're really having a hard time like like we first doze around but we'd like there's just no bucks and there was one really steep, craggy, nasty little um, peak uh, amongst these beautiful rolling hills. I'm like, this is going to be a buck. on That looks like buck country there. And it was a one spot. And I went and glassed it up one evening. And sure enough, I'm glassing it. And there's Bucky just comes, flashes across the top of it. I'm like, nice. there's the buck. And there then you go. Yeah. like, so like, I didn't even bother looking at the other acres and acres and acres. And, yeah. and, um, and then I went and tried to get him, and that was a whole other story. It was awful. Um, <laughs> There's <laughs> a good, yeah, there's a reason country. why I live there. It was, he was <laughs> yeah. unhuntable. He was yeah, unaccessible. Yeah. Like it was just, it was, no, it was terrible. Every yeah, aspect yeah. of it was awful. So, so I guess that's my, the next question is, is what are you looking for, for like habitat and terrain when you're piecing together the puzzle, as you say, to track down these deer?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, and maybe this relates to kind of, um, you talk about, you know, what's a good way to get into big buck country. I think, naturally people are attracted to open country so open fur and clear cuts and and nice rolling hills and things of that nature And, and maybe it's kind of range land type stuff where you know you can see a lot and you're going to see more deer but i'm kind of like at this point the energy doesn't need to be you know success isn't seeing 20 deer in a day success is seeing like a giant track of a giant buck that's a couple hours old and you know he's in the area it's like you don't see a deer the rest of the day or at all. It's like that to me is worth more than seeing 20 deer in the hoof. And, you know, there's three two-year-old deer and, you know, a bunch of does and whatever else Like I, I would rather just see one mature track and know that I'm in a zone where mature deer is currently, you know, rutting or feeding or whatever. Right. To me, that's, that's better measure of success in the long run than just counting lots of deer and maybe seeing something legal. Right. It's like, to me, like, I'm trying to find a mature deer. So that's the, you know, Number one rule, I guess, right? Uh, but but I'm, you know, focusing on tougher timber because I think people won't go in there. They won't have as much success. They won't see as many deer. But generally, deer behave more like deer in that country than they do in open country. And in open country, they are going to be much more protective. So I think my experience hunting open country was that the mature deer become very wise to where people are, where hunt, where, where predators are, and they act much more you know protective and and reserved than a big buck does in thick country and a big buck in thick country is you know when he's running he's running and he's doing his thing and he is not worried about all the other stuff um, predators and hunters and stuff as much as as he would be in open country where you know fly by night you know do his thing in the middle of the night and then go tuck himself away into some hole during the day where you can't sneak up on him you can't get on him very easily unless you get a little bit lucky on the the right morning when he's sneaking away or something like that so I kind of focus on, um, focus on that kind of idea. So I'm hunting thicker timber and that's, that's not always more enjoyable, but you know, you see a lot less deer and I had in my first few years there. I was, you know, I wasn't even seeing a deer sometimes in a, in an eight hour day of hiking and you're in the rut, there's tracks everywhere and you won't see a deer and you think I'm doing something wrong, but not all ruts are created equal and you know, not all seasons are the same. And you know, there was that year, there was actually two cougars in the area. And they were hunting together and, you know, that extra bit of pressure was essentially enough in my mind with deep snow that was loud and a couple of cougars in the area that the deer were there, but they were very spooky. So I think they were, you know, a hundred yards ahead of me every time, just shifting out of the way when they heard me coming and, you know, I was on, you know, hours old tracks and never on the actual deer themselves kind of thing. Right. So something to consider, right. If you're looking at an area and it's, and it's, you're seeing sign. I mean, that's the important part. If you don't see the deer, but you see the sign, I mean they're there hundred percent. And, you know, maybe that's not their year. Maybe there's predators in the area. Maybe the snow's too loud. Maybe they're, they're spooked up from other hunters or, or whatever, but uh, maybe next year when the, the rut's a little stronger and there's a few less critters in the area chasing them around, suddenly they start to show up. Right. So, you know, the first couple of years hunting, I was having a very tough go and I was very determined to figure it out. Like, you know, I could see the sign, I could see the rubs, I get them on cam and, you know, I just have to keep pushing and figuring out how am I going to kill one of these things. Right. And, eventually you know i ran into a buck and, and i kind of nicknamed it stickers because it had some you know kind of extra tines coming out the sides there big hooker stickers on each side so um i'd had him on cam and, and i saw him you know early rut and he wasn't a huge deer but he was an old deer and it was in this area so when i killed him it was kind of like i've done it i, f- I figured it out i'll crack the code right so i've you know it's possible it's doable right so it was kind of a, a cool experience, even though he wasn't like my biggest buck or anything like that. It, to me, it was like, that was, what I was here for I was here to find some old cagey deer that survived, you know, eight, nine years and, and, you know, make it come together. So I think I rambled onto a tangent here. I can't even remember what the question was originally, but <laughs> <laughs>
0: Where do you, yeah, what type of country do you look for your deer in? Yeah. Yeah. So, and, I mean, uh... I guess it kind
1: of answered. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think open country is a lot of fun. Glassy is a lot of fun. Um, and I, I still do a bit of that um, and get out from time to time and stuff. But, but to me I enjoy hunting on foot and, and in, in thick country, I think kind of the odds go up that you're going to find, you know, mature animals, which is what I'm after. Um, but I think for anybody even getting into deer hunting, like, you know what, like if, if you're just looking to get your first buck, you know, the most productive way might be driving clear cuts early morning and evening and, you know, hunting the fringe of those cuts where there might be some bedding areas, you know, out of sight during the day when they're not as active like that might be you know kind of the more successful strategy but in the long haul is it going to be as consistent as you know getting off on foot and figuring out a little chunk of timber I don't think so and you know I think you're kind of playing the lottery versus investing and playing the lottery you can win and somebody has to win and it's going to happen and you saw somebody post a picture in that that cutter you know in the country (laughs) just like that and it happens for sure and and that's a game of numbers and luck but I think if you kind of look at through an investing kind of perspective, put the time in and venture a little farther and start to try and pick apart a chunk of timber or two or a couple of ridges. And, you know, two, or three years later, you're going to kind of know deer move in here at this time of year. They, you know, I keep seeing does in this area and the, and the bucks always kind of wander in. So, you know, you eventually you put enough pieces together and like, you'll never solve the puzzle, but you'll know enough that, you know, luck and, and, and timing is going to work out for you eventually. And, and it's going to be more consistent in my mind. So, even if you see an area where there's there's lots of deer in these clear cuts, you, you know, go figure out they live in the timber, right? They, they, they're they going to spend most of their day in that timber, if not all their day and night in that timber, so yeah. go figure that out, right? And and go shoot that deer in its bedroom rather than, you know, just pounding that road over and over, hoping to, for one to step out and then, you know, clamor out your gun and try to get a, a, a shot at 150 or 200 yards and, and, you know, that's how all those buck stories are made, right? <laughs> <laughs> I guess they are. Well,
0: I have a... I, I, I've got a bit of an addiction to the, um, you know, Alpine backpack mule deer hunting, but it's, it is so unbelievably unsuccessful. Like, right. in yeah. the sense that like, I, I think I've, I, I hunt a pretty, I mean, I've got a great spot where I go and I see, I see deer every time and I see, and what keeps me going back is I see some tremendous bucks. Cool. And yeah. I see them. Right. Yeah. But I've been going about at the same spot for 25 years. I mean, and, We've killed four deer on that mountain in 25 years of doing the same thing. Every hunt's awesome. Like that's Isn't why not that a go. weird
1: addiction though, eh? It's <laughs> not yeah, a weird addiction? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's the story we're talking about, right? You're, you're, you're killing like <laughs> four so, 25 so. years, right? Like it's not even, no. you're not even killing at all. No, <laughs> i like, I, I, just, so I fun, just, right? So talk addictive.
0: about the bucks. I, I used this buck we saw, oh, it was gorgeous. Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And, but, but then I go, you know, there's a, you know, I go to timber hunting in October. And like, it doesn't matter where I go. I mean, I, I'll i kill a deer every year yeah. that I go timber hunting in, you know, the, you know, the, whatever you call it, the grassland fur interface anywhere yeah, yeah, in BC yeah. from the Chicotan to the Kootenays. Yeah. If you just wander around in mule deer country in late October, or early November, um, or even earlier, like I, like yep. I, I think yep. I'm, you know, I, I can't say that I have ever come up short on a, on a focused mule deer hunt in, in that sort of. Timber, so I I do think that, yeah, as much as it's not nearly as kind of dramatic or however it comes together with it with that spot and stock type hunting, um, that timber hunting is definitely worth investing in and trying to figure out.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I like I say, if there's one thing missing from my life right now, it's it's alpine mule deer hunting, and and I I know how badly I want to do it, but it just it so much conflicts with elk hunting and the sacrifice is a very, <laughs> very fun, exciting elk hunt and prime elk, elk, you know, rut on a hunt that is like super low odds and super harsh to, to probably not even get, you know, a, a, a deer in the scope, let alone put it, put a, put a bull in the air. Right. So, you know, I think elk Elkhorn hunting is like it, there's a great opportunity early September for some really good hunting, but the odds are really low and you know if, if depending where you are what you're looking at you know fog frost you know all sorts of things rain can can you know shut a hunt down so you can you can plan a four-day five-day you know alpine hunt and man how much do you actually even hunt right and i've i've been in that so many times and you just like you want you, you see a big deer and then like the fog just closes in on you and you and close the gap and then fog lifts and the deer is like moving before you can even get your binoculars up and it's, it's on you and it's, it's, it's aware of you before you're aware of it and, and away it goes. Right. So it's like, it's so fun, but it's, it's totally lower odds for sure.
0: Yeah. And the other, another thought that came in there about, you know, the deer, like you may have a target deer when you're Alpine mule deer hunting. And, and if, if you go after it and wind changes on you or you blow it, whatever it, it, it goes up and over the ridge, it's gone it goes into an, 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 an inaccessible area you kind of got to start all over. Like there's not necessarily another deer that's offering, you know, the, the, just sort of sitting up on a pedestal waiting for you to see it. And then, so you're kind of like, you're, you're kind of blown out. And and, you, you and also, wad, right? Yeah. 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 You kind of, yeah, you kind of, <laughs> yeah. you kind yeah, of you, you, you miss your opportunity because often too, like the windows of seeing deer is so thin, uh, with spot and stock hunting, like that deer active for that first hour of the day, and, and you got to track them when they're feeding to where they're going to go bed down. And then they're often active for the last hour of the day, but then it's really difficult because you're, you know, if you see a deer at, you know, with an hour of light, you're going to go over and shoot it. And then now you've got a dead deer on the side of a mountain somewhere. I mean, it's all doable, but, um, you're just limited, right? And so yeah, yeah totally. timber hunting, what's so cool about it is that like, for one thing, if you bump into a deer, it gets the jump on you, it buggers off. Well, you just hit the reset button. Yeah. And you just keep on hunting, yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> like, and then there's going to be another deer. <laughs> he's in deer. here, there's probably another one in here, right? Like yeah. it is how it is. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, totally. Yeah. And, and, or even, or he might like, you're also timber hunting. So that maybe that deer that you just jumped, oh, that's a good question for you. When you, we're getting down the road here, but when you jump a good deer, how do you, like, what do you do next? If you, if you, if you bump them.
1: So I, I think I've got a pretty good hack for this, but you know, everyone's got stories of different sequence of events. I know guys that have just dog deer afterwards. They've jumped them and they just like, they just push them hard. And that deer is going to go back into rutting uh, or you catch them in the next opening or whatever. And I know guys have dog deer all day and, and caught up with them, you know, shot them or not is a different story. But I generally, and, and it's different if you bump a deer and it's gone. But generally when I run into deer timber hunting, like, and it seems to work really well for me. Um, I generally just kind of, freeze right away and you know you normally kind of like oh shit there's a deer and i'm hunting thick enough country i'm not even using binoculars because i can't look 200 yards ahead or 100 yards ahead into openings and, and if i did i would spend you know every step would be a new opening between all the leaves and, <laughs> and branches right so like you, okay. you physically it's not productive to be able to use your, your binoculars you just have to kind of you know work your way through and if you see something that looks like a deer pull up binoculars and all that right but um generally if i if i kind of bump deer and even if they do kind of wander off i will literally just kind of stop slow down get small kind of hide my kind of stature kind of become less of a tall you know sticking out thumb on the mountain kind of thing and just kind of shrink my my stature and i just generally go right to a grunt um and i'll do a couple grunts i'll I'll rake a tree but but generally just a couple grunts wait listen couple grunts wait listen and i'll do that for like 10-15 minutes and most often deer will kind of pick you up as as potentially a predator or something spooky and they only have so much time to spend on analyzing kind of threats and after 5 10 15 minutes they've done the kind of duck down pretend to start feeding and kind of pop up and look at you and they do that a couple more times and eventually their tail starts to switch and eventually they just kind of go back into whatever they're doing whether it's feeding or rutting or 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 you know milling about and more often than not in in thick enough country i can basically take a group of deer and let's just say i shouldn't say more often than not you know 50 percent of the time i bump a deer and i will get back on that deer or calm that deer down enough to get a look at it and at least see what it is if it's a legal buck or a mature buck or just a couple does and there's no buck with them just through kind of grunting and i use other you know i've used those little can calls for like the estrus i've used like the deer talk with the rubber bands that has worked great for me in the past as well, but I've kind of reverted to kind of the simplest thing is just carrying a grunt tube on your neck. If that freezes up because of the cold air and, and, you know, moisture in it, then I'll just burp through my, through my mouth. And that seems to work just good enough as well. Um, and I've killed deer like this, where I've just kind of a bumped a deer. I'm like, okay, there's deer. And I'll kind of just slowly shrink. And I kind of like, you know, pull out the grunt, do a couple toots. I'll just sit and watch, not rush it, you know, just kind of calm down. And then kind of, as it's happening, I'm kind of shrinking, 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 and kind of, you know, second or third biggest deer I've killed or or around there. I've, I've literally gotten one doe and shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And over like a 15 minute period, by the time I was done, I was sitting kind of on my knees. My gun was out sitting beside me in the snow chambered, scope caps off. And then, you know, at this point now there's like three or four does and all of a sudden this buck steps out and it's got kind of this, this short G2, which is the back fork tine and I'd, I'd actually videoed this, this buck the year before. So I knew the buck already from my occurrence. So I kind of knew which deer it was and I knew right away that I was like, yeah, I'm going to shoot him. Um, and that was just kind of being calm, being small grunting a lot and kind of all the deer eventually just went back to feeding. And then this buck just kind of, you know, trotted out or not trotted out, but kind of st- stumbled out and started working the does again and gave me the opportunity to shoot it. And that was that. So I think generally, you know, if a deer bounds off and it's gone, that's one thing but if it, a deer bumps off and kind of comes to stop or, or slows down right away to me that's not a deer that that's run off that's a deer that sensed some danger took necessary necessary steps to kind of get you know comfortable and now it's going to reassess and normally okay. if you can kind of be as little of as a predator as as you know as least kind of frantic or or holy shit you know shoulder off you know binoculars up and freaking out like the deer is like listening and looking and all that stuff is just like kind of like escalating its its radars to like this is this is a predator this is dangerous gonna go whereas if you just kind of like come to a stop don't move a couple grunts you know slow movement slowly pick the binoculars up have a quick look okay still there can't see the horns a couple more grunts eventually that deer generally just kind of calms down goes back to to doing their business and i've bumped deer you know, for two hours straight and, you know, you know, come across new deer while I'm bumping this deer. Um, and this happened this year and I never got to get the final good look at the one buck. I want to get some film of it and, and Rick ended up shooting the next day. So we went back in there and found the deer again. But, um, you know, I was with that group of does the whole time and he was with the one doe up in the front and never got a good look at him again, but they kept calming down and going back to feeding. And I kept getting to these positions where I'd be grunting and calling. I'd see one deer kind of pop out of one area and then, and then I'd see one mill back and I'd kind of like try to close the gap and push them a bit. And then they'd kind of spring off and I'd start doing it again. So generally I'm just moving very slow at that point and trying to be as least kind of energetic and kind of sporadic as possible and kind of just blend in with nature. So if you, if you kind of shrink next to the tree or kind of lean up against the tree and kind of get low, it's like, it just tends to lower their kind of threshold for, for danger yeah. and kind of just get used to like, okay, well 15 minutes and this cougar hasn't snuck up on me or this human hasn't made, made any, any more noises or that, you know, another dog hasn't showed up or anything like that. Right. And they kind of just like, they kind of just give up on, on this threat kind of thing. Right. And they go go back to, to business until you kind of that's trigger it again. I,
0: I, I think I've observed stuff so that's pretty similar to that. Um, do one question, like when you, when you say like, I'm kind of getting the impression that you're hunting some probably even thicker timber than I, than I would hunt. It sounds pretty thick. Um, when when they're bumping you, can they see your full silhouette? Or are they just seeing parts of you behind and through I the thickness? I think generally,
1: yeah. For most scenarios, they're just seeing a part of me. But, you know, that story I was telling you about kind of the, the one of the biggest bucks I'd shot, and it was the biggest buck at that time I'd shot. And I'd filmed it the year before, killed it the next year. Um, I was a silhouette on that one for sure. So I, mm. was, I was sitting in, I was like, it was like barren fur. So there was like nothing underneath. It was like barely even grass growing okay. under this fur. It was almost like a rocky kind of underlay from it. And they were just up the slope for me looking straight down on like a white snow backdrop. And I was actually following fresh tracks in there, bumping this herd. And then I, by the, you know, 15 minutes later, I'm basically on my knees as small as I can possibly be. Kind of watching, watching, watching. And then this buck steps out and, and you know, away I go get into action mode and, and make it happen, right? But um, I think you can get away with a lot if you're not kind of in really open country and you're not in like a high pressure hunting area, I think you can get away Mm -hmm. with a lot. Um, And, you know, this, this even, even back to the days when we were truck hunting with my dad, you know, we'd pull up on some guys that we, you know, knew in the area that were trophy hunters. And again, I use that term very loosely. I mean, they, they enjoyed deer hunting and they selected very old mature deer um, before they would decide to pull the trigger. And they would be like, Oh, there's a four point up there. And, for us when we see four point it's bail out of the truck in those days and you know <laughs> chamber rifles you know try to make sure it's legal get the count and all that good stuff and, and then try to put something uh you know make sure it's a reasonable you know ethical shot and 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 enjoy that and all that but you know those deer are always sporadic it's always like you know the next 20 seconds is like do or die and it's it's like you know the herd's breaking up the deer are on the move and you're trying to count tines and, and and get a legal shot on, or a good shot on it it's like you know we pull up these guys like oh yeah there's a four point out there and we're like what and they're just calmly you know they're just using spotters out of their truck and they can see this thing but you know just the fact and this isn't a clear cut with a bit of cover in it and it's like you know i kind of learned something even back then when i was that young i was like how come these guys can see four point and just watch them we never watched four point we're <laughs> You know, these four point always running away from us, right? What's going on here, right? And you kind of <laughs> realize, it, like you know, like, they just kind of slowly came to a stop, spotted deer, you know, slowly turned the truck off two minutes later. And then, you know, windows come down, they're kind of glassy, looking for another big buck in the area. And, and you know, the deer just kind of get back to feeding. It's like, you know, when, when you know, windows come out and, and doors flying open and, and noises start coming from inside the truck and people are talking, you know, the deer's alertness is just kind of elevating, 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 right? And I think, you know, take that and apply it in the woods when you're on foot. And, you know, you, you can get away with a lot more as long as you just kind of keep calm in the moment and just kind of like generally work their their excitement down as long as you can until you've decided there's no buck here or the buck isn't worth shooting or it's time to move on because it's get you're getting cold like your fingertips are going numb or whatever yeah, right yeah, and you got to get right. moving so <laughs> one of those things is going to kick it at some point for sure right
0: yeah I had this I had this epiphany uh, about you know, hunting in timber years ago I was uh we were in mule deer country. And, uh, it was, we're in the grasslands and the, so we're in that fringe of where the timber meets the grassland and, and it was, we had a snow and it was like, and it was a crunchy snow. So you couldn't sneak, you couldn't sneak through and, and you know, yep. and so like anything, if you're walking in the open timber, they, they just, they'd see you from a hundred yards away and they just step, see, like you said, you were explaining like kind of just keep ahead of you all 200 yep, yards whole day all the time Yeah, kind of you yep. don't really see them. So I had this thought, I was like, well, it's too noisy to walk, but I, I, I'm just going to go for the thickest, toughest stuff that I could get into. And then I'm going to look back out of the thick stuff into the more open timber where the deer bedded down and kind right. of hanging yeah. out or feeding. And I, I I had an amazing day. I had a four buck day. Like I saw four, four nice. point bucks at a wow. day. Yep. And it was Fantastic just, a, I day. saw all kinds of deer and, and, <laughs> and, and, and every single deer that I saw like I was making noise but my silhouette was totally managed by the thicker stuff that I was in. They're all looking at me going like
1: right. Yep.
0: trying to yep. figure out what I'm doing, but they're not buggering off cuz they haven't they haven't got enough information for them to decide if it's worth like interrupting whatever they were doing to go bugger off. I mean they they do like you said, they have to they have to make a call as to whether or not yeah. It's, well they have it's to live, fright- right? You got
1: to think like there's 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 coyotes, there's birds, there's other deer, there's moose, and they can't just run away from everything every time, right? They'd be run ragged, they'd be skin and bone. So at some point, you kind of get on a playing field that's a little more equal, where, yeah, I can, I can wander around two legged in here and, and get away with a bit, right? And, and they got to make a decision at some point. So if you don't, you know, bump in the wrong way, have a wind at your back or something like that, you can, you can definitely push it a bit.
0: Yeah, that's really fun talking about it. here. Just pop your mic up a little bit. You're just fading out a little bit. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, that's, I mean, and I think that's the, you know, trying to find that balance between like super thick versus open enough that you can, I just actually was just, I just uploaded my, uh, a, like a still hunting, uh, e-course or what you call it, master's cl- master class, whatever people yeah, call yeah. it. But it, I have a, uh, uh, through COVID, we, I started doing a bunch of like, um, we, we do field workshops and stuff about Yeah, how yep. to hunt, right? And yep. then, uh, but I, you know, during COVID it was kind of missing the community. So I put together some like presentations, like webinars on like how to do, like how to hunt on elk, how to still hunt for deer, how to e-scout. So then I took all that stuff and I started recording like a, a bit more of a dedicated uh course that you could like, you know, if you're a yep. new hunter and you want to build some skills around e-scouting, well, you get to sit with me for eight hours. and
1: <laughs> follow me through Oh man, code sounds, code. sounds fantastic though. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's like, yeah, eat your heart outright for somebody that's, that's new. And, and there's a lot of new people looking for help, looking for mentors. So, I mean, it's, that's, yeah, that's yeah. premium stuff, man, for sure.
0: Well, well, the still hunting one was interesting cuz it's such a simple concept. Like, you know, I I thought I was, I'll I'll put this in together and you know, just it's basically walk quietly through the woods, you know, mind the wind, mind your sh- silhouette, mind your sound. And uh and 6 hours later, I'm like I've got like wow, how could I talk about still hunting for 6 hours? You know, like it's for, <laughs> yeah, it's quite just that long, walking but, really slow through through yeah, the country. Yeah. But there's so many decisions that you make to, yeah, in order to yeah. like set you up so that you can actually see deer before they see you and have a few yep. options. And yeah, that, that one that's so big is, uh, is that managing your silhouette and, uh, in and around, you know, thicker stuff. But I think the benefit is that you can, you can hunt, you could be a little bit noisier when you're in thicker country. And I think that's the. Yep.
1: Um, yep. I, th- I think, you know, timing's everything. So, I mean, one experience is, goes one way and you're like, it's just too loud in this timber and it's just, you know, the bucks are too spooked that same buck that same timber you know same snow country or conditions for loudness like a week later and he's on a hot doe and it's like that situation in the same setup can go differently just because that deer is now just 20 percent more focused on breeding than than he was a week ago or something like that right so i mean i kind of like there's no hard and fast rules you know keep your your wind good or decent doesn't have to be great but like just just be mindful of it. Don't follow a track with your wind going straight into it. Like try to at least, you know, put yourself in a situation that that's been somewhat managed. And generally November deer hunting is not too hard. Like you don't have a ton of wind necessarily very often. and You don't have extremely powerful thermals that you can't, you know, work with. So I find like wind's pretty easy to manage in, in the rut, unless you just kind of have a bad slope and a bad day where you just, you know, can't get in the right direction. But yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I think, I think just kind of, um, yeah, I've, I've had these experiences where, you know, I've woken up and the snow is so crunchy. It is like almost echoing back at me from the forest. And I've like bumped deer in that country, bumped bucks. I mean, young bucks in, in this exact um, experience, but like it's a four point nonetheless. And I bump and I'm like, oh, shoot, right? He's gone. And I literally could hear him just ka chunk, ka chunk, ka chunk, ka chunk. And he's got to be, you know, he went from like 70 yards away in the thick stuff to like, I'm going to say 250 yards away. Like he went up the mountain in this timber and I was just like, holy shit. And you know, I started grunting again and kind of sitting there and there's, you know, no deer around me anymore, but there was a couple does with it. So I'm just kind of like, you know, maybe another buck will step out. And I listened to this deer, ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk. And I'm still standing there and I can literally hear, hear getting louder and louder and louder. (laughs) And that deer came up all the way back in and wandered right back into me and then I had him you know on video and just kind of played with him for for a good 20-30 minutes there and and came all the way back in but you know you start to think about it like when that snow's super loud if it's loud enough the deer are making noise too right and and I think the harder time to hunt is when the snow's sort of loud when you have a big boot print because you're you know crushing so much snow and the deer can kind of slip their little you know hooves in and they're kind of quiet and it's like I find that's kind of hard but when it gets really loud you can you can almost kind of you know on a level playing field like that deer is making just as much noise as you are and, and it kind of has to come check you out in case you are another buck on his turf or you know doe that needs to investigate right so I've had I've had some experiences in really loud snow that are really surprising so I never there's no hard and fast rules like if the snow is shit I'll still hunt because like you know what there's ad dumb deer out there maybe it's not the big boy but maybe it is and you never know when you're gonna catch him off guard or or he thinks you're on his turf and he's in a mood to fight right so you know it's it's one of those things it's like you can you can follow a lot of rules, but there's always the exceptions to the rules and there, it's, it's never, you know, hundred percent, this won't work. It's, there's always a chance it can. So, you know, even hunting fog, you know, it's pretty shitty hunting, hunting deer in the fog, but mm. you know what, get in there and, and sometimes you can, you can see them through the fog and, and make it happen. Right. Or the fog clears for a minute and you're on deer and away you go. So. Well, you yeah. can also
0: sneak up on deer in the fog because you have those longer view quarters are cut off. So they're not it's seeing true. you from. It's, yeah. It works in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you can get in to kind of close the distance a little bit. Uh, they're not picking you up quite as early. I, I kind of like hunting fog and those like, yeah, wet foggy days. That's my favorite because everything's sort of quiet and there's a bit of moisture. True on enough, you get enough and...
1: moisture in the air and it kind of almost dampens the noise too, right? It kind of soaks it yeah. up, kind of thing, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I've hunted, my
1: favorite. I've hunted on some really heavy snow days. Like it's almost like you're in a sound booth. Oh yeah, snow is just like you know massive flakes. They're like the size of you know an inch big kind of thing, and they're just dropping all around you and. You hunting that stuff, it's almost like you can't hear what's going on 20 yards in front of you because it's just kind of the noise is just kind of muffled the whole time, right? And it's kind <laughs> yeah. of cool hunting though, right? I've, I've hunted something like that and the snow's normally quiet and, and had some pretty fun experiences with that and and definitely early season wet weather is kind of nice. You can, you know, a little wet, a little wind if the deer are active late October, early November can be a really fun time before everything freezes up loud and crunchy, right? So there's kind of like one of my favorite windows is, is in that kind of last week of October, sometimes first week of November when you know deer getting really active moving a lot and you know it's not necessarily crunchy ground it's not necessary frost in the mornings every time and you can kind of do a little more sneaking and bump a few more deer than than you normally would
0: yeah i ran up against that this year because i i we were in a zone which i found what i thought was deer heaven in october it was just like endless uh still hunting timber spot that I, it was kind of a tricky spot to get into. So I was like, oh, maybe this doesn't get a ton of pressure. And and, uh, right. yeah, yeah. and it's just like, and I figured, oh, man, I'm going to come back here in November when there's more deer around. And this is going to be the spot. And um turns out we showed up there and there was another camp, basically camped on the edge of it. And, and it was like, we ended up going over and ha- having a good hang with these guys. And they're all Kootenai guys. And I think a couple Okanagan guys, a couple of Kootenai guys and family. And they're just deadly hunters. Like when they, when they broke out there, we got, we started, we had a few rums with them and, and, uh, um, nice, yeah. they hosted us and it was a lot of fun, but we got into talking about like photos of the service sort of photos of their hunts. And stuff. I was like, oh, okay. These guys are, these guys are killers. Yeah. They're very much killers. I was like, I was yeah. like, okay, hey, well the good news is I, mean, I I figured I identified a good spot. That's number yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Right. No, spot. that's, that's, that's a win, right? <laughs> yeah. Somebody else
1: knows about that. That's another thing. Yeah. But, but yeah. it's still a good sign. Yeah.
0: But, uh, but they, they were hunting the same, the, the same way that I had sort of had, had hunted it earlier in October and, and had, we had planned to hunt it. So, but there you go, guys. We kind of divvied everything up and, mm-hmm. but the bummer was, is that in October I was able to still hunt it properly cause it was snow free. But as soon as you get in November, like we really had like out of the six days that we were there, we only had like two days that we could really hunt properly or cover ground and reasonably expect to see deer just given yeah. the conditions were so difficult. Yeah. So, you know, it, it does get trickier yeah and i think sure. i think
1: those conditions that is where like i think how you explain it in your story that's where a thicker country almost works to your advantage where nice nice like mule deer classic country of like kind of open and and fur mixed kind of openings and stuff is like they tend to be a little more cautious i feel like in that in the, in the loud snow because they can see a distance and they can hear a distance mm-hmm. and now they're like yeah i'm on you and i'm not going to give you a chance um and, yeah. and they're willing to move a little more and be a little more kind of yeah yeah risk adverse i guess So another
0: thing that was interesting, so I kind of, because we were kind of stuck, you know, we kind of divvied up this hill, we had to hunt the same spot. I don't love hunting the same spot day over day, if I can avoid it just because I, um, but out of the three times I went through this area and hunted it a little bit differently each time, I saw, like I barely saw a deer the first two times through it. We saw deer, saw a sign of deer. And then on the third time I went through it, I saw 26 deer and four bucks. Like, wow. it was like, and it's the same spot, the same deer. Yeah. It's just that, yeah, just that they the just conditions shifted. changed just enough that like, right. and I think that's something to do with you're talking about like this, that level of alertness goes down a little bit or the, the level of concern. And it was like, well, that's interesting. Like I knew yeah. that, I knew there was 26 deer in there because of the sign and the, and the, in the area. Yep. And then, but I just couldn't, for the life well, I, of me,
1: get on we, them, you know? Make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I say, it's like, even with trail camming and, and and still hunting or, or working way through an area it's like you can almost never discount an area as, as not productive like eventually you have to but it's like it's almost impossible to strike something off the list because you go in there twice and you see ah deer no deer but then you go in there the third time and it's like yeah that was the best deer hunt of my life um <laughs> yeah. this is the best place <laughs> in the world but it's like if you didn't go in there that third time you wouldn't know that it's like you kind of like it's weird that's that's what's so challenging about mule deer it's like yeah this this could look like awesome country and see no deer it's like you can't write it off. It's like, it's, it's, there's no deer today and the conditions maybe weren't right or they were just shifted on the wrong side because of X, Y, and Z and who knows, but you got to kind of put the time in and, and to really know if it's worthwhile or not, it takes, takes a lot of hunting, right. Which, you know, I think kind of points to like, if I was going to tell somebody what to invest, like if you find a good shed or good tracks or like really good running sign, I mean, I think it's worth investing a couple of years of hunt seasons into it. And, and, you know, for the area I'm, You know, the area I last hunted where I shot kind of three of my, my more mature deer and I shot many others there too, but you know, when I was getting really selective near the end, um, I really didn't get good at hunting it till the last probably three, four years. Right. When I kind of was starting to lean out of the area is when I kind of dialed it in and figured it out. And you know, that was like five years into hunting before I really started to connect on it and make it happen consistently. Right. And, and where I am now, you know, it was two, three years without killing anything. And then I killed my first deer. And i was hunting hard i was in there overnighting you know in there on a friday night after work getting in there at nine o'clock at night sleeping in the cold and you know hunting two days in a row and then and then trying to sneak out there on a sunday before before too too late um and i was doing that three or four weekends in november you know for several seasons before i actually finally connected on on the first deer and and then you know since then every year i've seen a uh, really respectable mature deer which to me is success like it's not always going to be your biggest deer it's if it's old and and got some age and and got some size i mean that's that's kind of what you hope for in bc if you can see one one or two good deer a year you're doing pretty much as much as you can do right say, um, yeah. I, I, I don't think like you know if, if you're looking for what's the measure of success on on getting into this kind of hunting it's like see a good deer a year is, is good right if you, you can't go expecting to see well i'm going to pass on four or five good bucks looking for a great buck if if you if you see one good solid deer. That's, that's as good as it gets sometimes. And if you get two or three, then that's a, you know, just a, an excellent year, right? That's just the deer numbers. That's just, I think how it shakes out for the most part.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I, I've shown, I, I've hunted mule deer for probably 30 years and I've killed one mule deer that you would say is like, oh, that's a, that's a, like a, like a like an eight plus year old deer, you know, like, yeah. and, yeah. and like, you know, all kinds of great four point bucks that are three four years old but yeah over the years and those have been awesome but i mean like and, and to be honest i think i've seen like and I, you remember them i remember them all actually yeah like, yeah totally all the yeah, they're all buried in that, that I've memory seen. for sure yeah, yeah totally yeah. but i mean like, if, yeah. I, I don't know if i would say average one a year i see one every couple yeah. of years i see something pretty special yeah and you know and that's that just keeps me thinking about Mueller all the time. It's great. That's
1: that's so, why you can't that's... shake it, man. It's not that easy and it's never that consistent. No matter how much you figure out and how good you get, you just can't bank on it, right? It's it's no. you know, you put in the time and, and it works when it works. But but yeah, I kinda had a rule before where it was like, you know, I thought it you know, when I was more eager and less experienced, it was like I thought if I just pass on that decent buck, I'd shoot a bigger buck for sure. And and generally if you look back and collect the data, it was like the buck I shot every year was always the biggest buck i'd saw before or after and i'd shoot it early you know early november and then I'd hunt with my buddies the whole time and i'd be like oh i wish i hadn't pulled the trigger you know we're gonna see a big buck there this year for sure and that one good buck i saw was the biggest buck of the year it's or, or the only good buck of the year right and mm-hmm. and the years i didn't shoot anything you know I, you see one good buck and you're like you know the, the day's over and you're like that might have been my buck and and sure enough you hunt four or five six seven more days in november december and that's the best buck of the year right so it's like it's it's if you can see one good buck man you're doing you're doing good
0: so talking about, so there's something that's happened to me with my whitetail hunting and I am very much like a dedicated whitetail hunter and I, I I hunt whitetails for seven to 10 days a year in the same spot. So and cool. it's been, since I was a kid, since I was 13 or something, I've been doing nice. hunting hunt in the same spot. So it's very much, it's so somewhat scientific observations. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so what I've noticed in the last like 10 years, I'd say maybe, maybe 15 years. So the first 15 years, say of hunting whitetail deer, I would see lots of spikes and forks and three points, and and I shot truckloads of those as a kid. And then something happened. I started hunting a bit differently, hunting in different places. And I actually rarely see, like I almost only see mature bucks now right. in these particular spots. Like I kind of honed in on these particular yeah. spots. That if I see a deer, it's typically a three or sorry, like a four or five year old white tail, which is pretty old white tail for where we are. And every once in a while, I'll see like a stunner. And, um, and right,
1: yeah, and, yeah, but I just
0: don't see those younger bucks at, where, I'm, and they're there, they're, I mean, you see them on coming and going and, and whatnot, yeah. but not where I'm kind of focusing my hunting effort. Did, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He, it's, it's, how, does that strike a chord at all? With yeah, me? yeah, yeah.
1: So that's, uh, I'm kind of thinking about a few things. So, and you say, you know, even just you talk about scientific data, and like, I mean, that's so much what we do as hunters, you're trying to solve for x every time like well the deer did this because of that and then you're always wrong but you know you do that enough times and something starts to be true and and the rest of the stuff that you thought was true kind of falls away and then you know i kind of find i you know i i go on a hunch or a theory and then you hunt that way until you prove it wrong and then you kind of adjust your theory until you got it right and i kind of when i was hunting in this area i am now i kind of found sheds in a certain area and it was the nicest country and i was like that's the spot i'm going to kill a deer and so i focused all my energy there and these sheds were older and I think, you know, old enough, like 10, 10 years old kind of thing. Like they, they weren't chalk. They've been protected from, from the sun and, and rot and all that. But what I realized after like that, I was like, you know, once I'd cleaned that area out of sheds, there wasn't a lot of mature deer still shedding. All I kept finding was two-year-old deer, three-year-old deer sheds and lots of deer every year. And then I kind of started shifting. I was like, you know, I'm hunting kind of less favorable country. It's, it's, you know, not as nice in the winter. It's got some blowdown in it and you know, I started shed hunting that and found sheds and they're fresher sheds. And then there's, they're this year's sheds and they're mature deer. And all of a sudden I'm like, the deer won't hang out there because that's where all the does are. That's where all the young bucks are. And they'll, they'll sneak in and grab a doe here or there, but they're not going to spend their time in there. They're going to hang on the fringe and, and hunt this or stay in this other area. So all of a sudden I knew all the big bucks were there. And then, you know, Now we've shot two bucks back in the other area that are mature. And so, you know, and and you refine your theories and there's some reasons for all of it. Right. And so I think there's a bit of a a few pieces that are true for everything that I've decided over the years. And so one of the reasons I wasn't seeing sheds there and I wasn't seeing bucks there is because after the kind of pre-rut and early rut activity, the mature deer tend to kind of, they will travel and they're, they're, they're doing their long runs, but I think they kind of latch into an area. They've got their home base and, they don't need to breed 30 or 40 does as much as people think like bucks just want to breed everything like, yeah, but they're happy to not go after every doe that's below them, lower down in the elevation or, or over the other bench. Like they're happy to breed a couple does in their area, run, run the show there and live out their, their, their rut, you know, in peace from, from, from wolves and cougars and predators and all the other stuff. Right. If they feel comfortable in area, you can almost find them in there somewhat consistently. And, um, so what I was, what, what we're finding out with these these bucks showing up that are mature in that other area, it's in that pre-rut phase where they kind of do their walkabouts, they kind of stretch their legs, and they kind of get excited about what's about to happen. You know, a few fights, raking lots, and just checking out where all the does and all the all the all the bucks are. And they kind of do that more tr- higher travel kind of period of the rut where they're moving and shaking a leg, and then they kind of go back and settle into their areas and work those does in those areas only and and kind of stay kind of fairly focused during that kind of peak rut where it's, it's breed, 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 and then go lick your wounds and, 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 you know, weather the winter at that point. So I kind of think I I figured it out through a couple different ways and now it's kind of consistent early season, you know, late October, early November, we're going to see those bucks, mature bucks kind of spread out all through both areas and then kind of mid November to late November, we're going to kind of see them frozen up in a few of their, their areas and that's where they're rubbing. That's where they're up on cams. That's where you, you, you hike in there and you're going to find them on the, on the right day. Um, and then they're going to winter in those areas as well. Cause they're kind of honed in on them. And there's kind of like a weird period, I think late rut where things kind of break loose for a couple of days sometimes. And it's like that last kind of, it's almost maybe like a second, rut, Almost like you kind of like, they get this last little surge of testosterone or something like, well, let's go check for a lot- another last dough or so, you know, a couple extra deer kind of come out of the woodwork. It seems late, late rut, which can be pretty fun too, but mm-hmm. I find it's kind of less consistent. It's kind of like you either go out there and like things are happening or you go out there and the woods can be pretty dead. Right. So, so it's a bit of a, a gamble, but I know people that love that last week of the season, last week of like November, kind of into December. Um And I probably would favor, you know, first week of November or last week of October. I think that's kind of my jam, but but yeah, I mean, it can happen kind of anytime, obviously. Right. Yeah. We didn't even get to talk
0: about like prime time for the type of hunting that, that we do. We've covered a lot of ground man, and I, and I've, this has been an awesome conversation. I, um, I really appreciate how thoughtful you are about, you know, your hunting process. I, I've, I, I've got like three more questions. I'd love to ask you. Well, i will going to ask you one that, that, just, and it will is, um, do you think that mature bucks are harder to hunt or just harder to find?
1: Um, Based on my, my, my experiences as of late, I would say just harder to find. Yeah. I think they're easier to hunt, yeah. and so I've got you know so um, my buddy Rick that does a lot of hunting with me in, in our current spot, um, you know he's he's kind of pulled the, the trigger on the last couple of deer, which is great because he's been there all the whole time and he's finally connected on the ridge now with with a couple of nice bucks which is fantastic, but he's also tapping into like kind of these bucks that have just reached the age where they're getting predictable. And just reach the age where they kind of know not to go here, not to go there. Mm-hmm. And we're mm-hmm. going to be able to pattern them. We know where they're going to end up, you know, in the next few years. And we're going to be able to find them when they're, you know, reached a ripe old age. You know, they've passed on the genetics. They've lived a long and, and prosperous life. And, and you know, it's time for for us to try and, you know, make <laughs> ends meet kind of thing. Right. So, so I'm, I'm super stoked for them. I'm also like, those are the deer. Those are good bucks because they are, they're just getting to that age four where they're just, they're just getting patternable. And I think, you know, those deer, once they're patentable, it's like, you can find them. And that's what happened with Bart, to be honest. Like, it was, it was, you know, my biggest buck that I've ever killed. Yeah, tell us story the story of had. Bart,
0: because I, okay, now we're going over time, but I yeah, you yeah. have to hear about Bart, because that's a fascinating story.
1: Totally, totally. So, um, when I got onto the, onto the ridge that I'm hunting now, um, first year I hunted it, I didn't have cams, and I did some overnighters, at rough, rough times, like, minus 20 and in, and in, in a little backpack tent it was makeshift tent that i had built in and um out of canvas and, and tried to have a little stove and it, it it went poorly like i survived the night you know half hour sleep at a time and fighting and off hypothermia the whole time and you know hunted my ass off and you know it was it was a you know, tail tucked between my legs and, and never saw anything mature but um the next year i was kind of like okay well that was so much effort i was like i found some really cool country because i just kept motoring trying to find big tracks and, and big bucks and uh I went back in next year, laid the cameras, went out, ended up killing my biggest buck in in my other spot. And so I'm just still in that transition period where I'm hunting hard one area and getting to this area. Well, that year, that's where Stickers showed up, the, the first buck I killed on the ridge. And that was when Bart showed up as about a four-year-old. And he had kind of this real nice buck frame and and again it's not all about the inches right but but it's part of the story for me and and it and you know it's it's it helps with kind of understanding how big and old the deer is right so he's he's got this nice frame he's got a four point on each side plus he's got these dagger inlines that that sprout up that are five or six inches at least on each side so it's just this in my mind one of the coolest bucks i've ever seen um i've never killed anything like that in my life so i was like oh wow so got those cams the next year actually maybe later that winter hiked him with snowshoes i think and tried to I was too excited. I couldn't wait. So, so long story short, man, I found these two bucks. I was like, oh my God. And there's a couple other four points running around, a bunch of other four points running around. And I'm just thinking this place is loaded with deer. So at that point, I was like, I was all in, man. I was hooked. And so the next three years were spent just hunting so hard. And what ended up happening is the next year I cammed, both stickers disappeared and Bart disappeared, never caught a sign of them at all. But the year after is when I found, um, or two years after is when I found Stickers shed, and I had him on cam again, and I had Bart on cam again that year. So I killed Stickers. Bart was on cam the next year. I hunted there, fresh in there with a tag, and I was wandering around in the woods. And this never really happens with cams. Cams kind of like just tell you there's something in the area, right? It doesn't normally tell you where to mm. hunt, when to hunt. Like it's just like, okay, there's a big buck here. I'm gonna I'm gonna hunt here, right? And it's not I can't go hunt where that camera is. I won't kill anything. That buck shows up once in three weeks you know so good luck being there that day that spot and killing him right like it's just not going to happen you'd have to you know dedicate your whole november to sitting in a tree stand in one spot so you so you can't use the cam to go and say i'm going to shoot the deer there but he was showing up enough times in the same spots it was kind of like this is a switch like this is no longer just like i know there's a deer here this is like this is a deer that was patternable he was in the area he had kind of his routines um as much as you can routine pattern a, a mule deer but I was 100 yards away from a few times and didn't know it till I went check cams the next day or the next week up when I headed up there. And all of a sudden, I'm like, "Oh my God!" I was walking this bench here, and I went check the cam. And that same day, I was walking that bench. He was up above me, you know, two, three hundred yards, you know, herding a bunch of does, and didn't know at the time. But part of why he maybe was the most patterned, most patternable deer of all was he he sustained an injury in his forearm or in his in his front leg. And I don't know if he broke it and it healed up or he just fractured it and it just calc- calcified. But he had this really nasty wound. But, you know, the next year we're going up and, um, you know, just, you know, just missed kind of seeing him in the daylight. And I knew, you know, this this, this buck's going to be back. Like at that point, I was like, this buck is going to be there. He spent his whole year there. Oh, and, and, and this, in the spring, I went up and found his shed and we found both sheds. So perfectly intact. And we did, you know, 40 hours of shed hunting. And we found like three sheds and two of them were his brand new fresh Browns that had just dropped, you know, three months earlier. So it was like of, of all the deer we're looking to find sheds from, we found both of his sheds right below this bench that he was on. I was just like, Oh my God, you know, this is, this is now Bart's bench kind of thing, right? Like this, this is where he <laughs> hangs out and this is his spot. So, um, went up there in October and I'm going to set cams. So the weekend before I'd gone up solo, set some cams, I only got like four or five of them out, and you know it's quite a bit of hiking to go and set a few cams in a few areas to 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 lay out the ground. Right, it's normally two or three days of hiking to, to get them all out. So heading up this next weekend, a bunch of you know on our way in, there's a bunch of logs. All this you know BC storms knocking out some massive fir trees. So oh yeah, we're chainsawing our way in, and blah blah blah. And you know one of the cams I got up is one of the earliest cams on the way in. So when we're making our way in. It's a cam you check every time before you kind of get to, to where we're going to uh, spend the night. And I check this cam, and I'm like looking at it. I'm like, holy shit, you know, that's a huge buck. And then I just look at the shape of his horns. And I was like, that's a, that's Bart. And like, this is October. This is like Saturday at 10 o'clock or, or, or noon, and here he is crossing this camera like, you know, two hours prior. So like, I literally I'm flipping through the photos, and like, that was like the first photo. I was like, oh, it's a solid buck. And then you look at the date, and you're like, oh, that's like today and you're like oh man that's like two hours ago and it was like also you just kind of like look up and the forest just kind of changes around you. you're like holy shit like there's there's a mature deer in here right now and like you know hunting's never that easy right that, that's unheard of so we like we just dropped everything and just went into a, a full hunt and so we just hunted till dark and no we didn't even see a deer um neither me nor rick so we, we you know we, we we spread out and we grunted and hunted the whole thing so we got our gear went and then finished hiking into camp you just pop your mic up
0: again. We just dropped, dropped off quite a bit when you there you go. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, so yeah.
1: um you know, we grab our gear, go go pack into camp at night at that point and settle in. I'm just like I've got so many cams to set and I can't walk away from this deer right now. It's like this is like he's he's active in here right now, and it's not even the rut. Like this is kind of like we got to take advantage of this, right? And woke up the next morning and so kind of made a plan, like, let's let's just go in there nice and slow and we'll spend half the day in there and cover it off and then we can probably just like ramble our way in and try to get a couple cams set before the end of the day and and make the most of this right so get a good hunt in and then just like you know cover a couple kilometers into one of these other spots and get some cams set up and still salvage that part of the of the trip um and so we headed out in the morning and it was just me and rick split up from camp and hunted two different zones and we kind of figured it was gonna take us a couple hours Neither of us are seeing anything. So we're covering around a little bit faster because there's no encounters. You're not, you know, grunting or playing with any does or trying to work a group of deer over. So I got to the spot that, you know, i had cam set up and checked the cam. No sign of them. I was like, okay, that's fine. And it was weird. I'd hunted this area a few times and, and you know, knew that he was in there the years before. And one thing I noticed is I set my cam up on this trail going, you know, with the cam kind of thing, right? So this trail runs across the bench. and I set the can lined up with that two or three years of camming and more than half the time, the deer were not walking the trail and they would walk the trail, but like half the time they're walking the trail, the other half the time they are crossing the trail perpendicular and heading straight up this mountain. And so I kind of sat there. I didn't know where to go. Cause I'm like, you know, this is kind of the end of this hunt. There's no other timber for me to hunt here. It's just nasty blow down and, and, you know, tough areas that you don't want to even try to hunt. It's just, it's just fruitless. So. I kind of think about it, I was like, you know what? Like, maybe this area above me isn't so bad. There's enough deer heading up there. It's not just a random deer going to bed in the in, in the blowdown. It's it's got to be some more country up here. So, it's funny enough that like I'd seen that on the cams enough times, and I, I was sitting there kind of like, well, it's still early, you know, it's still peak morning here. Like, it's a good time to be out calling and whatnot. So, I end up charging on this mountain, and it's very steep. The ground's frozen. It frosted, so it's so it's loud and crunchy. And I'm trying to dig my toes into like just frozen steep. Yep shit right and it's just really awkward and i'm huffing and puffing i'm trying to grab trees to keep my noise down so i'm not slipping and, and chirping and all that and i just kind of break over the edge and i'm kind of covering my breath and get a grunt out and kind of catch my breath get another brunt, grunt out catch my breath and also i just see like a little flicker and i'm kind of right on this like little bench and i can't even see that it's nice yet because but it is fur and i'm kind of standing this blow down on the edge of it and i've just kind of crest this hill and it's kind of like okay but I didn't realize how nice it was in front of me. And all I needed to do was take about 10 steps beyond and get into like a bit of an opening, a bit of a kind of a fur bench again. But I see this little flicker. Binoculars go up and it's still October. So it's technically it's any buck at this point too. And I pulled my binoculars up and I can just see this massive beam and massive top fork. And I knew instantly that's it's gotta be Bart, right? Big, heavy buck, same spot, same curl, same curve, but I can only see a chunk of his horns, right? And he is just like, coming straight at me and so like basically binoculars up confirm that like I think I'm looking at Bart and drop my binoculars and gun up and he's basically dogging right at me through this blowdown and so my heart just like you know goes from 0 to 100 and it just goes straight into my chest so I'm like you know I don't have anything to lean on I'm trying to stay above all this blowdown and I'm trying to follow him in this in this <laughs> um timber and he steps out for a half a second and he's disappearing behind the next tree. And I'm panicking because I can see how thick it is on the one side of me. And all he has to do is turn two steps and he's into like the real shit stuff that I refused to hunt. Right. Like it was nasty, yeah. nasty, nasty stuff on that side. So I can see all that. And he's just on the yeah. edge of it. And so he gives me the shot and it's not a great shot. And, you know, I think at this point you just kind of, your brain out either knows you got to pull the trigger. Or you don't, you don't yeah, second yeah. or third think it. You just, you just kind of, the neurons fire they don't fire based on all your experience and time spent behind the gun and so pull the trigger and you know his front shoulder was already disappearing behind the tree when i pulled the trigger jack the next shell in and he bucks up and instead of dogging into the thick stuff he heads towards the open stuff which i don't realize how open it is yet because i'm still looking over this blowdown. but he comes yeah. out of that stuff i get my gun up and i pulled the trigger again and jack the third shell and i can't see him disappear and i have no idea what happened I've heard a lot of noise and you're kind of wondering, was that him crashing and burning or is that him gone, you know, to the next County kind of thing. Cause I just threw two shots out there. Right. And knew neither of them felt amazing, but <laughs> yeah, you know, there was, was enough of opportunity shot, that too. you have to shoot, right. You have to take those opportunities on a big buck and thick timber. Like those are the shots you get. And so, you know, I gave him like 10, 15 minutes. I'm just kind of sitting there. You know, I did a little quick film. Cause I'm just like, you yeah, know, this is insane. <laughs> this just boiled <laughs> down. And like, I think like I'm pretty sure it's Bart, like it has to be Bart. I'm like i don't know if he's alive or what um and so then kind of like phone away you know i've rechambered at this point obviously as well and you know the whole you know we haven't seen a doe yet this is the only deer we've seen between last night and this morning and sure enough i start to walk up there and he's piled up where i last seen him um, first shot hit him good both lungs and second shot was a clean miss um even though it felt kind of maybe better than the first shot but anyway second shot was a clean miss and he was dumped basically right where I took the second shot. He just disappeared behind timber and that was it. He was, he was piled up there. So cool experience. And, and just like definitely the oldest buck I've ever killed. I figured I got him on cam when he was four, might've been five. This is four years later. So he's eight or nine years old at this point. And stickers may have, sorry, I I should not say he's the oldest buck for sure. Stickers was a very old deer too. And, and you know, but, but this was, he was big and old, right. Genetics and, and age combined for like this spectacular kind of deer, which is really, Really cool. So pretty neat experience, you know, not even the rut yet, early November. And that's when we kind of seen the wound on his forearm had healed over. And that's kind of the year before he was nine points on one side and he was, he was just a clean four point on the other side. So that side with the nine points was the side he injured or the opposite side he injured. But either way, I was kind of, I'm pretty positive. That's why his one side blew up. He had the injury hormones and, and inflammation in the body caused his horns to kind of grow wonky. And I think that's why he settled into that spot so hard is he was favoring and nursing an old injury and he was safe there, protected there, and he went straight back there before the rut even kicked off. He was already in there kind of locking down his territory for the year because he was just, you know, probably kind of learned that from the year before from being injured that that, that was a good spot to be, right? Right on.
0: What a story. The story yeah, of it was Martin, cool, man. Yeah.
1: So cool, so cool. I mean, that stuff sticks with you forever. So, I mean, it's, it's so hard how to How far be... away
0: was he when he when he was, when he
1: said dog into words either? there? <sighs> So when I saw his ear flicker, he's probably 60 meters. And when I pulled the trigger, he's probably 40, something like that. And he piled up, yeah, 30-ish, 40-ish in front of me, out of sight kind of thing. Um, And now I go there every year. So now I I know that spot. And that spot turns into two more little veins of timber that are huntable. And those trails kind of lead into some of the areas that we were hunting. And we'd never found them before, never kind of stumbled through there. And there's just so much shit forced around it. And you mm. wouldn't know that there's these little kind of troughs yeah, yeah. of, of fur mixed thick stuff that the deer are feeding, bedding and, and rutting and constantly. And we just, you know, four years in, we hadn't even found that spot yet. And then all of a sudden I've kind of, we've unlocked that now. We know it's so like, yeah, deer travel through here every year and this leads straight into some of the other hunting that we like to do up there. So it's like, if you don't spend the time, you're right. You don't, you don't figure those spots out. You don't learn that little nook or that little cranny where, where mature deer kind of settles into, right or the huntability of a little spot. Like, all, yes, yes, exactly. So right. many
0: times going through there to figure out, okay, I could, you, it's a, yeah, to find that how to hunt a little spot, how yeah. to sneak in, how to get vantage over it. And yeah. Yep, yeah. The route sure. in. All and this, and
1: yeah. I, I passed the very next year. I passed on like a, you know, what, what we used to consider like a really big buck. Um, and, you know, call it like 170 inches for, for estimate for people that care about inches. Like that's kind of the stature. um, and I bumped into them in the morning in the fog. could hear them all. Didn't know it was him, but like that buck showed up the year Bart was killed. He showed up and he'd been there two years in a row after that or the, the next year after that. So when I got in there, his deer, I was like, okay, this is good. And I knew I could have gone right at him and maybe kind of done that little technique where you kind of push and, and grunt and push and grunt until you get a chance to look at him. But with the fog and how much noise there was, I was kind of like, you know what, I'm just going to let these deer settle. And now that I kind of knew this place well enough, I was kind of like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this little bench further over this way and use that other little vein of, of timber and come around from the top. And, you know, hour and a half, two hours later, I'm basically hunting my way above where I bumped those deer that morning in the fog. And now it's kind of opened up and cleared up. And sure enough, I bump a doe, it bumps another doe, and then out jumps this kind of really solid, dark horned, buck that I knew was in the area and I'd already kind of decided I wasn't going to shoot him you know I I just killed Bart and I had such a great year the year before I was like I'm in no panic to pull the trigger we had two elk in the freezer like you know life was good I was just out there to see what was kicking and and have some fun chasing mule deer and so this buck popped out and he's like he's worn ragged his you know fur's messed up he's he's just barely hobbling along like you can just tell he's just (laughs) he's just rutted so hard and he's on his last legs and it was like last week in November so he was just burnt out but still chasing dogging does and he was he was he ran away from me literally grunting he was like burr, burr, burr. and so i drew down on him and just watched him through the scope and then kind of let him walk in and chase the does again and try to get some film of them afterwards but they're a little bit spooked at that point because i bumped him pretty good but it was really cool because i would have never known how to hunt those those the, that spot but i knew there's two or three different routes through it and he was able to circle around and just drop straight in on them and you know gave me another opportunity had a really nice buck how to you know been eager to fill a tag or fill the freezer, but you know, I have stocked up and no, no need to kill anything and and just enjoyed the experience. Right.
0: Well, and he's going to be there next year, maybe.
1: Exactly. Yeah. He was, he was, he was around this year and he's getting really old now. He's got one eye, like he's, his his one eye has kind of been damaged along the way and, and he still has it, but um, it's like, you can see it in the reflection from the, from the trail cameras. It kind of doesn't reflect or reflects more, I guess is is what it is. And so he's, he's got some damage there and and he's getting all gnarly up and getting really old. So he will be, you know, the oldest deer on that mountain this year if he, if he's still alive. If he makes it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's getting to that point now where it's, you know, he's going to be cougar food or, or wolf food one of these days for sure. Oh, maybe he'll make it. Regardless, how, how fun to really
0: get to know an area and, and watch the story unfold every year. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, cool. it's
1: something else, man. It's very cool for sure.
0: Well, we'll have to have you back on and talk about camera setup and stuff like that because it's something I want to learn about. And uh, and I'm not, yeah, got to find my way there. Hey, hey, so what, Um, hey, have you, uh, after freezing your ass off in your homemade tent, have you invested in a in a in a in, a, in one of those hot tent concepts yet?
1: Yeah, man, I'm, I'm kind of upgraded now. And, and you know, just to preface that whole thing, that's going back to 2013, I think 2013, 2014. And and you know I guess these tents were around, but they weren't as prevalent or well known as they are now, right? And and nowadays, it's pretty hard to do, you know, home build for what you can what you can do off the shelf, right? So I've got um, I bought a, or me and Ryan bought a, we had a wall tent. To be honest, we just weren't using it. And it's such yeah. a fun way to hunt with a wall tent. Like, I love it. But, you know, we're just kind of looking at It's like, you know, if we're going to do like a goat hunt ever or a sheep hunt ever, we're not going to use the wall tent. We don't need it on our elk hunts because we've got trailers and and then we're spiking out if anything, right? So, yeah. um, ended up selling the wall tent and instead bought a, it's like a four and a half or a five man pyramid. Um, and it's called, I think it's from light outdoors and it's, yeah, so it's a, it's a six foot six or, or seven foot kind of peak and stakes out you know, around 11 feet by 11 feet. Yeah. And it's, I think it sits around four pounds or something like that, or maybe three and a half pounds. And then the stove's another two and a half, three pounds, little those ultra light, little titanium rigs. And yeah, me and a buddy, Justin, um, used it on a quick overnighter for mule deer this year or last year, actually, it was, it was pretty sweet. Yeah. I mean, you don't run the, the stove all night, but it's just nice when you come back from, you know, freezing all day and, and you can actually thaw out and, you know, have a drink of whiskey or something like that and warm your hands by the, by the, the stove and really nice in the morning when you're waking up a bit cold and tight from packing and hiking all day to, to just kind of like get that thing ripping and thaw the body out before you go and start glassing. Right.
0: Oh yeah. For sure. You get to do a little, little morning yoga by the fire. It's really <laughs> <nice>. <laughs> yeah. So it's here. pretty
1: nice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's kind of awesome. going to open up some new, um, new opportunities for sure. It's kind of a, a nice way to go.
0: Yeah. It's a game changer. I, I got, a I bought one of the seek outside eight, eight person tents, right on about, about several years ago now. And they, and they've actually, they sent me a, a couple others since then. Um, and, uh, they're just, yeah, it's just a game changer. Like they're, they're yeah. unreal. Like the, uh, we had a, one of the, the Cimarron on, um, on our elk hunt this year. We like, we, we packed our pack rafts into the zone and like, we were soaked to the ass. Like it just, we, we just had to go through this bush and it was wetter and farther than we yep. expected. And you know, I wasn't really. Normally, I'm pretty careful about not getting wet. I, you know, I get my shell on and all that kind of stuff. But uh, just, just didn't get, just didn't get to it. And we got the stove going. We got to the river bank and we got the stove going. And within two
1: hours, like just, just leaving your clothes on, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just, you're burning it out dry. from the inside and burning it out from the outside, and, and all of a sudden you're dry. You're just like, oh shit. Yeah,
0: and I was like, great. Yeah. And we're just starting like a a ten day expedition, soaked to the ass, mm-hmm. and then next thing you know, you're dry again. Like, oh, that was yeah. that's a game changer because like you know rule number one of like you know expedition hunts, like don't get wet. Like, yeah, yeah. And, and just to have that little safety net. I mean, turns out the next day of the hunt was like 35 degrees. And it was 35 <laughs> degrees every day, so we're mainly using the tent for shade, yeah. but it yeah. was great for that. Yeah. But yeah, oh, that's yeah. a
1: game changer. But totally. But weather can change, right? You don't know what you're gonna get. It's it's thirty five one day and then it's and then it's nasty rains the next. So definitely well, get arsenal yeah. or tool to have in the arsenal.
0: Totally. No, and there, yeah, and just the this yeah, at four pounds or whatever, like the I think the yeah, the, the Cimarron is four pounds and
1: yeah, with the stove. It's unreal. Like Isn't that yeah. something though, hey, and you can fit a whole crew yeah. in there, right? It's like it's it's so good.
0: Yeah, especially for that late season hunting, it just extends that like like it extends the ability to go do these late season mule deer hunts and, and you're not committed. Like I've got a wall tent and, but it's such a commitment to set it up.
1: right? Yeah. And that's, that's part of why we didn't use, stop using wall tents for, for elk hunting. And, and the years we used the wall tent, it was like invaluable, like wood stove, you know, hunting in just piss poor weather, you know, mm-hmm. raining all day and then like frosting at night and even hail and snow. And like, you know what, you, it's really hard to dry out in a trailer or something like that in that weather. And and the wall tent was so good for that kind of stuff. But always had to dry it out, clean it out at the end of a trip. It was a lot of work. Whereas like these little hot tents, it's like half the time it's dry, putting it away. And, and, and even if you have to set it up, it's not a big job, right? It's, it's a five minute pitch and it dries out with a, with a 10 minute breeze on it and it's good to go Mm -hmm. again. Yeah, totally. Cause yeah, I'm the guy hanging up the eight,
0: you know, 18 foot long um, wall tent and trying to find a garage for it. And like, (laughs) oh, just, yeah, and you're it. trying to flip it and inside oh, out it and God, try to get yeah, it, get every
1: side dry. And you're just like, Oh man. Yeah. yeah. So easy to I'm, screw over, that up.
0: I'm over No, I'm over. I, I'm almost, I'm like, Hmm. I was looking at this one. They have one called the courthouse, which is like a, um, kind of a wall tent design with sidewalls and sort of, yeah, it's good. I, my buddy, they brought one on our, on our you know, horse hunt. And I was like, this is great. Like, yeah. it was a great wall tent for three or four and it's just way lighter, way smaller, way less of a commitment of gear. And, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Find that it smallest is, yeah. size
1: or you still get some creature comforts out of it, right? And, and Yeah, totally.
0: Yeah. Just, I mean, it's not a wall tent. Wall tents are great, but they're also yeah. man, they're a commitment for sure. Huge. Hey, okay, we got to wrap this up. So hey, last yeah, yeah. question. What are you looking yeah. forward to next year? What are you thinking for hunting? You got anything anything cooking this year that you're excited about?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think we talked about it a bit before. Um, trying to work on a, on a float trip for moose. Um, I say float trip, so backpack in and use pack rafts. Um, so kind of similar stuff that you've done. Um, so hopefully that comes together with a good group of guys. We have got some cool country to check out there. That'd be really neat to do by by a packraft. Um, and then kind of uber focused on on elk this year in terms of trying to check out some new areas. So we're kind of in uh, transition time. We're we're kind of moving out of the East Kootenays and checking out some new areas. So We're doing some more stuff up north. So we've we've got some great spots and um, hoping just expand on that and, and try to go a little deeper. Do some backpack spike camps out of Elk Camp and kind of getting some. There's some really cool stuff up north, right, that's, you know, not accessible very easily by a lot of people, and you don't need to have a jet boat, and you can just kind of maybe go far enough away from the jet boaters that they're not getting hunted, and far enough away from a road that they're not hunting it. And my gut tells me there's going to be some really old elk in some of these pockets that are unhunted. So um, doing a bunch of groundwork for that um, so that we can kind of tap into a couple new spots like that to get some older elk. Um, and then yeah, mule deer. We've got kind of I've got kind of two new spots in my mind to to investigate, and that's just more do a trip in for shed hunting and maybe lay some cams and then check on it the year after and see see what we learn. But but yeah, lot, no shortage of things to hunt and to go and to explore, and then we'll see how much would actually happens. Because say
0: sounds pretty ambitious for a guy. <laughs> a nine month old.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, dude. Kids kids here now, so who knows if if we'll pull half that off, but. It'd be nice. Yeah. The elk hunt will happen. The moose hunt will, will happen. Just don't know how, how in depth we'll get with it. Right. But we've got the, the ambition right now. So we'll see how that goes.
0: Awesome. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I got a, I got a present for you. I'm going to send you a package of West coast kitchen, uh, dehydrated food. They're one of our sponsors for our podcast and, oh, wicked. Uh, uh, Peggy, uh, Penny who runs the company, she's, she sends me a, a box of stuff and I, give out, give out a package to anybody that's been on the podcast, but it's, it's actually, it's, it's amazing stuff. It's a, uh, it's a game changer again for me, uh, cause it's like whole food, real food in the bag that's been dehydrated. So it's actually like a, her husband's a chef and he's a good chef. And so it's like nourishing dehydrated food for, yeah, yeah. for extended expeditions. Uh,
1: Love it. I wouldn't mind trying some stuff out. I've been asking buddies lately cause I've been doing more and more backpacking and, and trying to find something that tastes good and feels good and isn't overly salted and all that and, and yeah, kind of gets, gets in your yeah. guts and all that. Right. Um, yeah. I yeah, have to, I gotta years. tell you one. I gotta tell you one more story. So you kind okay, sure of talk about homemade. So <laughs> on our moose hunt that we did this year, I took a group of buddies um, that hadn't done much hunting. Like they they've all hunted, but they weren't kind of accomplished backcountry guys, and they had you know they didn't get after it every year consistently. So they're kind of pumped to do this trip. So we were chatting lots, leaning into it, backpack style. Um, everyone's you know training, running, and 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 lifting weights and getting really geared up. And you know I I think it was the Uh, beyond the kill um had a video where um nolan shot this massive roosevelt and they had this chef with them on this hunt and he did this carpaccio elk um Mm. dish out in the backcountry and i was like i was like oh man like i I love meat i love carpaccio and tuna sashimi and anything any of those kind of like delicacies so in my mind i was like i thought it was being really you know cool like really gonna bring this neat thing on this trip with these guys into the backcountry so I'd kind of like made my own recipe and played around with a couple of things i'd you know i was gone to lengths of grating a little bit of parmesan and put like these little tiny ziploc bags i was going to have these little crackers with some moose carpaccio if we killed the moose out in the middle of nowhere and um you know everyone would have a couple of crackers a little bit of cheese that we could that we could maybe melt or just or just put on there with the, the citrus oil that we was going to be used on the on the meat so i thought this was really cool and i'd like you know got the weights down to like these little packages and it wasn't going to spoil on me and all this Meanwhile, my other buddy, who's you know again not as seasoned as accomplished, you know kind of hadn't figured out weights of packs and, and all the gear he's bringing in, he made his own dehydrated meal just out of curiosity and wanted to do it. So he did, and I kind of in the back of my mind I was like, oh, this is gonna be awful. There's no way it's gonna be as good as these, you know, processed ones that are they're down to a science and they know what they're doing. Well, anyways, first first meal out there, he's like, all right, I brought this home cooked meal for everyone, and you know it looks looks like spam, and it's actually just kind of meat dried up, right, ham dried up, and he did these noodles. He pulls out a bag. I'm not shitting you. It's it's the largest freeze freezer bags you can get from Ziploc. And it is stuffed full of Parmesan. He's got, I'm not joking, like a pound and a half of grated Parmesan in his bag. And here I am. I've got these little satchels of this. And I just looked at it. And I was like, oh my God. And so he dumps, you know, like a pound and a half of Parmesan on this, on this pasta and meat dish that he had homemade and home dehydrated. And it was absolutely delicious. But it was, it was so funny because, you know, everyone's like excited for this, this trip. And here he is. He's got like a 85 pound backpack coming in. he's got, you know, two pounds of Parmesan cheese and, you know, other guy pulls out a bottle of, of scotch and it's like in its original bottle still, he hasn't poured into water (laughs) bottle or nothing. I'm just like, you guys are nuts. (laughs) You know, one guy had like, I think it was six canisters of fuel. (laughs) <laughs> hey, you know, one of those canisters you can boil probably, you know, 10 liters of water with, right? Yeah. And he's got like six canisters. He's like, oh, I didn't know how much we're going to go through. And I was just like, oh man. So they were all really beat up on the way in. And then, you know, they started unpacking their bags and I was like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. I see what's going on here. It was like, you guys just overkilled a couple things here a little too much. Right. But yeah, it was a good learning yeah. experience for them for sure.
0: Oh, that's cool. Well, that that so that so often I ask people, I was like, what's your most memorable backcountry meal? Um, and I think you just answered it. Oh, dude, a, a <laughs> without story. a doubt, without <laughs> a doubt.
1: Well, and the, and the funny thing was the other guy was like, I brought a treat as well, and he's like, he pulled out, he had these vacuum pack like steaks. I don't know if they're like Walmart or whatever, but like you know, one of those kind of prepackaged steaks, and they're wrapped like tenderloin wrapped in bacon or something. Like that. And th- there's five of us on this hunt, and um, he literally, or four of us on this hunt. No, five of us. Yeah, five of us on the side. And he literally had like seven steaks. (laughs) Wow. I was just like, like, oh my God. You know, we all had our fill of steak one night and we had leftover steak for the next night. I was like, we didn't tap into any of our backcountry food for the first like three days. And like, we were still feeding off those first two meals. It was just insane. That's oh, yeah, awesome. it well, good. It's, it's, it's actually one
0: of the, I want to, I want to do some content around like gourmet backcountry meals for, for your hunting adventures. That's one of the things I'm thinking about, like the back, uh, yeah, gourmet hacks for the backcountry. Yeah, like, totally. Like right. Talking it's, about. it's
1: some there's something about it. right? It's kind of fun when you're, when you're heading in the middle where nowhere, you're trying to shave pounds everywhere, but then you kind of want to throw in that little kind of like. Oh, yeah, this is going to be really good out there. Like, oh, this is going to be a good little sip of, of, of wine or, or whiskey or scotch yeah. or something like that. And so it's yeah. like it's always cool, kind of, you know, your little treat that you have in the backcountry and how much you're going to appreciate it, right? So that's a, uh, oh, yeah, yeah be cool why not? Sure. I mean, we're all out
0: here because we're, we're foodies, right? At the core of it all. So why not? Yeah, like... totally. And, and I like I like the challenge and playing with it too. So again, another podcast for the future, Backcountry totally. Hack Meals. Well, this has been tons of fun. I'll, uh, I I look forward to, to, yeah, get to know you a little bit better, Jordan. This has been, I think, got a lot of common ground and just very much a similar passion for how and how we hunt. I'm, I'm looking forward to our offline conversation after this because it's totally, a of yeah, like, yeah, yeah. No, this is a lot of fun, so. man, and,
1: and really appreciate the stuff that you're putting out there, helping new hunters and doing all these clinics and stuff. I think it's, uh, it's a good, positive thing to have on in the industry. So so yeah, cool. glad to chat and, and agree. He's got some some pretty fun common ground for sure, and what we like about hunting and what we like to pursue.
0: Yeah, right on. Well, yeah, and I think uh, again, just thanks for sharing. I think that's a great contribution to to folks uh, to yeah, to step up on on what is I think one of the more challenging hunts. I I would say the most challenging hunt in BC is to is to is to see and kill a mature mule deer buck. So, so for sure,
1: yeah. for sure. Yeah, right I on. I think you're right. Everyone's got their own opinion, but definitely, I think it's one of them for sure.
0: Definitely. Okay, it's been fun. Okay, we'll we'll sign off and say goodbye to the Eat Wild well folks and we'll catch up after I hit end here. Anyways, That's see good. you folks. Hey folks, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Now, we'd love to hear from you. So drop us a question either on our Instagram or email me directly at Dylan at eatwild.ca and We'll do our best to answer that question on our future podcast, or we might even build an entire podcast based on your questions. So thanks for doing that. So if you want to hear more from Eat Wild, you can come join us. We're doing a series of Eat Wild Learn to Hunt webinars. So we're getting together on a monthly basis, talking about all things hunting with a group of mentors through a webinar format. They're tons of fun. Come join us there. Now, if you happen to live in the Vancouver-Burst-Columbia area. We do in-person workshops where we get together, learn fundamental skills for you to be a better hunter. Hope you can hang out for one of those too if you happen to be in the area. Now, we'd love it if you could leave a review or a comment wherever you listen to your podcast. That'd be a great help to us. And more importantly, share this podcast with folks who care about the stuff we're talking about. So thanks for doing that. Until next time, eat well and well.